it's Alaska. I mean, I don't want to take credit for Alaska. I, I'll take credit for doing a good job sharing it with people and, and doing it with integrity, but I can't take credit for v- why it happens to people. I mean, it's the play. God did that. You know, yeah. I mean, he just boiled up some stew that like everybody's going <laughs> to like eating, you know? I mean, it's like, if you don't like that, you got, you're, you're probably going to starve. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, welcome back, guys. We uh, we're here in Alaska. Admin, my first time ever to Alaska, and uh, we're here at All Alaska Outdoors. The friend Bob, the owner, and also our bush pilot this week, flying us around town. Bush pilot um, and guide. Bush pilot and guide. Yeah, I guess that's true. And uh, just a man of many talents. But we're uh, we really appreciate you getting us up here. We've had a incredible week. I mean, it's just been like mind-blowing some of the things that we've seen some of the fish we've caught and especially some of the people here just getting to meet uh meet everybody but uh i I, not to put you on the spot right away but when we were flying yesterday in the plane uh you recited a poem for us that was i felt like really encapsulated alaska and encapsulated like why people come here and if you'd be able to i'd love to hear hear the poem recited to okay, kind of get us going. Okay, let's see if I can do it. That was the first, time I, that's the first time I had recited it in, in, in a couple years. Uh, a lot of times when I'm with people that I know are going to appreciate it, especially when yeah, a couple of ultimates under your belt, you know, and, and you know they've sort of seen the grandeur that I think that the poem exemplifies so well. Uh, I tried to rip it out, and I got lucky. I don't think I missed anything on that one. Maybe a word here and there, but I don't think I left out a stance or anything. So, uh, you know, it was written by uh, Robert Service, who has a bunch of great poems. I got a few others uh, memorized. I almost hit you guys with a second one. <laughs> but uh, um, he was uh, my, my recollection was he was a banker in Canada, and the Canadian government had commissioned him to go and basically chronicle the the gold rush in Canada many years ago and um you know the the place really moved him watching that and he and he wrote a bunch of poems so this one is called the spell of the yukon and i you know the yukon of course is just right over there you know it's across the border so we're talking about the same basic country so i'll see how i can do (laughs) Uh, and, and again the the thing about this poem is that the gold for for Robert Service in this poem, uh, what, what he was watching is, is for us, it's the fish, you know, I mean, we'd sort of like say, okay, well, the fish is replacing the gold or the, or the game or, you know, the, the, what you're seeking. So here we go. I wanted the gold and I sought it. I scrabbled and mucked like a slave. Was it famine or scurvy? I fought it. I hurled my youth into the grave. I wanted the gold and I got it. I came out with a fortune last fall, yet somehow life's not what I thought it, and somehow the gold isn't all. No, there's the land, have you seen it? It's the cussedest land that I know, from the big dizzy mountains that screen it, to the deep death-like valleys below. Some say God was tired when he made it, some say it's a fine land to shun. Maybe, but there's those as would trade it for no land on earth and I'm one. You come to get rich, damn good reason. 
you feel like an exile at first. You hate it like hell for a season, but then you are worse than the worst. It grips you like some kinds of sinning. It twists you from foe to a friend. It seems it's been since the beginning. It seems it will be till the end. I've stood on some mighty mouthed hollow that's plumb full of hush to the brim and watched the big husky sun wallow in crimson and gold and grow dim till the moon set the pearly peaks gleaming and the stars tumbled out neck and crop. And I've thought that I surely was dreaming with the peace of the world piled on top. The summer no sweeter was ever. The grayling a leap, the, the bighorn asleep on the hill. The grayling a leap in the river. Wait, I goofed that one up. <laughs> the, the summer no sweeter was ever. The sunshiny woods all a thrill. The grayling a leap in the river. The bighorn asleep on the hill. The winter, the brightness that blinds you. The white land locked tight as a drum. The cold fear that follows and finds you. The silence that bludgeons you dumb. The snows that are older than history. The woods where the weird shadows slant. The stillness. The moonlight. The mystery. I've bade them goodbye, but I can't. They're making my money diminish. I'm sick of the taste of champagne. Thank God when I'm skinned to a finish, I'll pike to the Yukon again. There's gold and it's haunting and haunting. It's luring me on as of old. Yet it isn't the gold that I'm wanting, so much as just finding the gold. It's the great big broad land way up yonder. It's the forest where silence has lease. It's the beauty that fills me with wonder and the stillness that fills me with peace. Wow. wow! One line wow. there, I goofed up. Oh well, way better than what we could do. That's that's for sure. And that's Alex. So continue hey on the, uh, rest of the podcast. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> totally forgot to introduce <laughs> Alex. <laughs> do, do you have an intro like that? Uh, Did you prepare I, I, anything I don't for have us? a poem to recite like that. No, I don't have a grand entrance like that. But <laughs> <laughs> that it's pretty awesome. I'd never heard Bob say that poem before, and the scenery and the setting for it was perfect it was awesome. flying over the mountains like we were after just you know a full day of fishing and just hearing him say that poem i'm like okay i get it like it, that encapsulates yeah. the moment of you know alaska yeah so sorry i forgot to introduce Anyways. you also <laughs> <laughs> i was like we have bob here and this other guy <laughs> hi everyone no well alex is responsible for getting us together you yeah. know i mean uh, Al, you know, Alex came to me. Al, Alex uh, has was uh, uh, called me up. I think you were getting ready to start your education in in hospital administration, right? And you said this yeah. is the last summer I'm going to have off, and I want to do something cool. And would you be interested in hiring me? He actually came up and he sort of did Bill's job, you know, kind of just kind of help run the place. He was probably the best one I'd ever had because it was the first time I had a, a an adult. You know, I was always hiring a young kid or very young adult. And Alex was through college and he understood the, you know, he's mature enough that he, he put his effort into it. He did a great job. And uh, and then, of course, he went off and got educated and started bringing back guests and, you know, and, and, and whatnot. And he, he, 
he's a very aware of my clientele and being that we've been in business, I think this is 27 or 28 years now. I've got some aged clients that have come for years and years and years. And Alex was kind of like, you know, you know, Bob, you need to start reaching out to people my age or you guys aren't going to have any business. He goes, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and it's like, and this is these guys that I met. He's like, they kind of have the type of venue that that reaches my generation and you know you're you're neglecting it and you know and i'm and i, and I said oh, it makes a good point and you know so he sort of talked to you guys and and explained what you guys did and i you know and i said okay i'm let's give that a try and so i'm really glad we did it because i think it's you know i i've learned from chris hansen who who was here this week just happened to coincide um you know that a few years ago he started to come up here and just through his social media presence he's kind of built our help build our business as well and people a little bit younger than kind of our our long-term clients that we've had for so many years so. sure well i think we should start out and maybe say kind of where we're at in our trip a little bit for the folks following along here so uh we came up here to hang out with all Alaska outdoors um which is Pretty close to Anchorage. Tell us a little bit about where, where we're at. Two and a half hour drive from uh, Anchorage to the Lodge, Blacktop, pretty much the whole way. Um, you, you can fly to Kenai. Uh, one way or the other, the way we're set up, you know, we sort of have like timeshare units is the way I describe it because I, I belong to a timeshare. Most people understand that. You've got a full kitchen. You've basically got an apartment to live in so you can be autonomous on your meals. As you know, we had a nice one night gathering here where we kind of fed everybody a little bit. But for the most part, we say, okay, go, you know, you guys handle what you eat. It's more efficient. It's certainly much less expensive than if you go someplace that's going to just, you know, feed you three meals a day. You have to gather with other people. Your timing has to be their timing. To me, this is the way I would approach a lodge if I was going somewhere. So that's how I built mine. But anyways, so you do need a car. You, you, you can fly to Kenai, which is then about a 20-minute drive to the lodge. And you can rent cars there. But then you're tagging on another flight for every person there and you still got to rent the car so most people would take that beautiful drive from anchorage through um through the pass um turning in pass and um come down through the upper kenai river valley which you guys got to float and i'm sure we're going to talk about that and um <clears throat> and then uh you know and then you hit the flats and you drive out to the lodge and we're outside the town of soldatna um it's you know, it's a kind of, we have twin cities, Soldatna and Kenai. And between those, there's plenty of restaurants you can eat at. You know, there's a Safeway and a Fred Myers six miles from here for stocking up on groceries. And, uh, and then you, you, you know, you get a, when you come stay with us, we get you checked in, you get an itinerary maps, guide, guide contacts, you know, what you're going to do each day. You go out, you do your experience each day. You bring, if, if you are doing something where you're going to bring food back or fish or game for in the fall, we, we hunt a little bit. Um, you know, we, we process it all for you. We make it all airline ready to take home with you. So that's kind of the overview of, of sort of the setup. 
Yeah. Perfect. I think when you think about Alaska and you think about going to a lodge or a you know destination type of deal, I think I feel like you think at least in my mind, I thought you know way out in the bush, like really roughing it. You know, you got to fly in to even get to the lodge, and there are places like that. But I think what's really unique about here is you do kind of get that feel of being kind of out there, but you're not. You still can go drive to the grocery store if you need, and then you know you hop in the plane and you're way in the bush, way in the national forest or national park. And I think that's super unique about this, this lodge in this area. Yeah. I'd say one of the things that's unique about us is because of, of how invested I was when I built the lodge, I I moved up here. I was a physician. I knew I was going to build a lodge on a, on a float plane lake so that I could do remote flyouts because I fell in love with flying a beaver Many, many years ago, the first year I came to Alaska, I said, I'm going to be a beaver pilot. So I knew that that was going to be kind of the the overall setting of my venue. But I, I had to work as a doctor, so I couldn't very well just go live out in some little cabin out in the wilderness. And so it made sense to be on the road system. And then, you know, I mean, obviously, if you've got nine or ten, well, I don't know. I, I used to quote nine, you know, typical week at a remote lodge where they're flying all the food in and they're flying all the help in and they're flying you in. And then they're doing a fly out every day, except if the weather's not good, you don't fly out every day, you fish local and they don't go, oh, here's your big discount because you didn't get to fly out. But if, if you've got that nine or ten thousand dollars to spend, you know, by all means, great experience, I'm sure. But a lot of people are somewhere in between there, you know, and and being able to take having a a lodge environment, handle all your food, which you can do more efficiently on your own and and take that out of the equation. And then being able to take having everything remote out of the equation. But yet, hey, we want to do two or three trips that are remote. No, by the way, if the day we had one of them scheduled, the weather wouldn't allow it. You get a refund on that. You go fish the river. It's a much less expensive trip. You don't feel gypped. I mean, I've talked to people who've gone to remote lodges and didn't fly out once. You know, I mean, a quote, fly out every day lodge, 10,000 bucks. Sorry, the weather was bad. They didn't burn any avgas at all. They didn't put any time on those motors. You you pounded the river in front of the lodge for a week, probably blown out because it's been raining every day. You know, being on the road system allows for a lot of versatility. You probably aren't going to halibut fish if you're at one of those lodges. Now, you guys didn't do that. We could have set that up had you wanted. Um, You know, it's not particularly thought of as a fly fishing venue, but a lot of people that fly fish are like, yeah, I'm in Alaska. I'm going to bring home some white meat. You go out, you get your halibut, your rockfish. You know, you you sacrifice a day working instead of fishing is the way I look at halibut fishing. It's like, (laughs) okay, well, I can work a little bit this summer. I'll go halibut fishing a couple times. So, you know, it it, the the operation we have, you know, one of my, um, back when we used to do brochures years ago before the internet sort of took over the advertising venue, my, our motto, I guess you could call it, was versatility is our specialty, meaning we can do a lot of different things. And that's one of the things I like about the way my lodge is set up. It's the kind of lodge I would go to if I was going to a, you know, I would look, if I was going to some other place to fish, I would look for something just like what I offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Know? And I think that's perfect. And we've definitely gotten to experience that a little bit here towards the end of our trip is that uh, we've certainly done some stuff that's DIY 
but you could all so you could come in and just have a great kind of base camp set up here through all Alaska, but obviously use some of your connections if you wanted to get with guides, get, do a hunt, do a saltwater trip, whatever you wanted to do, or go on a float plane. So it's really an awesome home base, I think, to be able to come in and have you know a great spot to hang out and then a great spot to set up shop and then do day trips from here, whether you're just wanting to come to Alaska to fish yourself or if you want to do float plane trips every day. And you I mean, could everything do everything in between. One. That's right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You can come up and not book a single trip and just go fish and we'll handle your fish processing. And we've got guys that come every year, get a room, fish on their own, bring their fish back. We process them and all they do is stay. We love to have those guys. Yeah. You know, that's great. And then, and then like you said, you could say, well, I'm going to do this like a remote lodge i'm going to be out in the bush every day and not do a single road system based trip right most people do a blended model you know we put together packages on the website only so you got sort of a ballpark idea of how much stuff costs you know we kind of have a basic package and then we have kind of a specialty package and the specialty packages i build for the time frames I put in the trips that are really working for them. And the basic package is just three river trips, a saltwater and the single location fly out. And that one goes across the whole summer. And that just gives you a time frame. But the reality is what we have is a menu and you order off of it. Right. You know, right. and then if for some reason, you know, the week you're here, one of the menu items isn't available, either the fishery's not working. We say, you know, there's no point in taking that trip. I mean, we don't, make people take boat rides if we know that's what it's going to be you Mm -hmm. know or there's a weather issue you're supposed to go on a saltwater trip and there's 10 foot seas and that's canceled you 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 get refunded for that menu item so it's a pretty nice setup yeah i I really like that like you said if i was looking to book a lodge out myself that's exactly what i would be looking for and i think one of the aspects of the lodge is that i love personally is coming back from your your trip for the day and you come out and sit around the fire um you know cook dinner or whatever and then you got people showing up from their different trips and you all just sit around talk about your day meet friends from all over the world i mean you you have people from come from all over and you make friends and connections and like the guys that were here this week just stay next to us like great people we'll probably meet up with them some sometime down the road right you know great right. bunch of guys to go fly fishing with if you're ever montana or wherever they're from meet up with them go fishing so you meet a lot of great people and get to you know and get to experience that camaraderie up here yeah right. and we got to hit the sauna with them get, get in the, yeah <laughs> that's cool the you guys <laughs> did the sauna yeah. yeah that is awesome yeah. the sauna i love you know i don't get in it that much anymore <laughs> i love the sauna i built that thing um I, I did built that myself actually. Yeah. Um, so impressive. I learned how to do scribe fit from the guy who built the main lodge and he taught a class and we built my sauna and he got it up to about two and a half levels in the class. And then I finished it that winter myself, uh, all the way up till the top. And then he brought the class back in cause he had to teach us how to do the, 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 the saw cuts for your purlins and your, your rafters and all. So that was like the, so there was like a delay in the class while I got it the rest of the way up. 
and then everybody learned the, the end of it you know how to set the purlins and the ridge pole and all of that so uh i i had sat in a sauna he took me out to another guy's sauna that he had built and said you got to sit in this and i was like oh, i gotta have one of these <laughs> yeah this is the coolest yeah. thing ever you know <laughs> so the sauna is an awesome experience and uh you know you can jump in the lake and uh, which i'm sure probably some of you guys we, did oh, yeah. when you oh, were yeah. hot and we did the old uh jump in the lake tradition swim to the other dock and it was it felt amazing it was cold but it felt awesome. yeah yeah <laughs> but back to what alex was saying i think i think that's one of the big parts of going to a lodge and a big perk yeah. that you of kind of getting that lodge experience that's way different than say like getting a holiday in yeah hotels room somewhere is you can still you can still do your own thing, but you still also at night get that lodge experience. Yeah, it's I I love that aspect of it, and it keeps me coming back for sure. Because you meet so many cool people, and then like on the note of the sauna, it's like I I from my knowledge before I came up here, and you know what my dad did a few trips to Alaska, and they're like doing the backwoods bush type trips, and you're with your group the entire time. You fly into uh, some remote place, you take a boat out and you're basically sleeping on the dirt, you know, and you're stuck with those guys for the entire week. And, um, it's just like a different, it was so cool to come up here. Like you can go fishing, you know, you're cold, you come back and you can go sit in a sauna. It is yeah. nice up here. Like, <laughs> you are not, you're not roughing it, but like you said, you can get on the airplane and be in, in the middle of the bush in, in an hour and just like get that serene alaskan experience like wow this is this is alaska so and there's no humans within potentially 50 miles of where we are in some of those lakes like that was the most incredible thing but i think to zoom out really quick and kind of go back i'd I'd love to hear how you ended up here in alaska because you're not a native (laughs) from a a non-native alaskan and yeah so how did you end up in alaska and how did you decide to stay and start this lodge well, you know, when I, I grew up in Texas and uh, outdoorsman from the time I was a little kid, my dad had me fishing probably 40 weekends uh, a year. You know, I mean, about 10 were dedicated to yard work <laughs> and, and, and the other 40 we went fishing, you That's know, a good dad. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, but I was doing that yard work when, when, when those yeah. yard, I didn't get those weekends off, you know, <laughs> I, I earned my fishing, but um, I, you know, in the summers, I fished all the time on my own. I mean, I'm talking when I was little, I mean, and pretty soon other kids whose dads didn't fish wanted me to take them fishing. And so I kind of was a guide probably by the time I was eight, literally. I mean, like me and kids driving our bikes down to, you know, a coastal area because I grew up on the Gulf Coast outside of Houston, an area called Clear Lake. And, um, you know, I just, I was just, I guess I was just, my genetic makeup was I was a guide. And so anyways, I got a little frustrated um, over the course of my young boyhood and early adulthood with the fact that Texas was pretty much a system of highways with barbed wire fences on both sides. You know, I got a little frustrated. I got a whole poem I wrote in high school that sort of exemplifies that, you know, um, that I was kind of disgusted with society and, and the ownership and just, you know, you couldn't just the free, the lack of freedom. And, 
it was pretty clear that Alaska of all the states was the one where that didn't exist. You know, I mean, there, very little of Alaska is privately held. And so that made me want to go to Alaska. You know, I, I, I actually dreamed of being a mountain man, not a physician and building a lodge early in my, in my young adulthood. But long story short, I, I ended up thinking, well, I'm going to become a fisheries biologist. And I, I, um, started uh at school and uh in sam houston sam houston state university outside of uh uh houston uh, about an hour and a half and oh one of my college professors talked me out of being a fisheries biologist he said you know you're a pretty bright kid you you're gonna be broke if you do that and he convinced me i should go to med school well it turned out that when i was a senior um I was teaching a lab because uh, I was I was accepted into med school at that point, and I was teaching a lab. And one of my professors um, was uh, that I taught the lab for. It was the anatomy and physiology lab, and um, uh, that uh, it was the lab the nursing students had to take. <laughs> the ones that were going into nursing school. I was in college, so you know it made sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so I'm teaching this lab, and um, and about the middle of the year, it's a year long class. The the professor goes, God, I gotta find a, I gotta find a deckhand for my salmon fishing boat in Alaska, and I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm like, he's like, yeah. He says, I don't teach summer school. He says, I've got a commercial salmon fishing boat, and I in Alaska, and one of, he used to take one of the other professors who would come up, and they would come. Around. And I'm, at the time, I was a deckhand on a sport fishing boat out in the Gulf of Mexico in the summers. That's what I did for my summer income. So I'd done that for the whole three years, my first three summers in college. So I said, well, I've grown up on boats, never been seasick a day in my life, know every knot, never salmon fished, but I'm sure I can figure it out. Long story short, he brought me up here in 1986. And... Um, uh, it was, in fact, it was uh, June 22nd, the day after summer solstice, uh, 1986. I stepped off the plane in Anchorage at about 11 o'clock at night. The sun was setting behind the Alaska Range. It was a crystal clear day, and I went, this is where I'm living. I mean, I knew it. And and from that point, I, I concocted that I was going to build a fishing lodge. I mean, I just knew that after I got through med school and residency, I was going to move up here and I was going to build a fishing lodge. Didn't know what I was going to become as a doctor at that point, but that, that was my plan. And, um, so the very end of that summer stay, right before I went and started med school, I, uh, my dad and his best friend came up and we, and my dad offered to pay to go on a remote trip. So I, I contacted the, the other, the rival air charter service, but, uh, at, at that time, Talon air didn't exist. Alan hadn't opened an air charter service yet. And, um, I booked a flight out to Crescent Lake and this young man about a year or two older than me flew the beaver. My dad let me seat right, you know, my, my dad and his friend let me sit right seat, you know, in that beaver. And we flew over to Crescent Lake, which is a, a place that we do trips to all the time. And I knew flying in that beaver that I was going to be a beaver pilot. I mean that, that, you know, and I didn't know that until that mo it was like, Oh my gosh, you know, I just thought I loved Alaska. I want to be in the outdoors. Like I'm doing this, you know, I knew it like you knew the sun was coming up. 
so that that's kind of how it all evolved you know i went back i started med school i had a really tough time getting through med school i mean not not clerically i did fine but it was rough because i just wanted to be back here and it was just horrible because you know i was stuck in dallas texas you know and everything was just like I mean, just overwhelming. I just wanted out of the city so bad, and I had to grind out four years. But, you know, I managed to find ways to come up here. Um, in, the, in Like my first summer off, I came up and worked again in the salmon fishing industry. So I did that two years in a row. My second summer off, me and one of my partners in the ER here um, came up, and we commercial clam dug out on an island because we only had a month, so I couldn't really do the – the the full meal deal the whole salmon season and we commercial clam dug for a month on an island and and just dinked around and then i had to get through the third year which was a long grind that's your toughest year of med school and then the fourth year i had electives and i went to the um alaska native medical center and did a two-month general surgery clerkship in july and august the very beginning of my fourth year so i was figuring out ways to get here i even pulled off a two-year road, a two-month rotation in Dillingham at Kanakanek Hospital during the middle of my second year, and shot a nice caribou. In fact, the caribou that's on the front of the sauna, that rack, I shot that during the. So I mean, I was hooked. I just was like scratching and clawing any way I could to get back here. And then when I um, when I got out of uh, uh, residency. I started calling the different hospitals in Alaska. When I called this hospital, which was where I wanted to live, the Kenai Peninsula, that's what I knew. They didn't have any job offers. They, they said they didn't need anybody. And so I interviewed in Fairbanks and I interviewed in Ketchikan and I even interviewed in Montana because I thought that would be my next backup state. And it turned out I was, I was about to accept the job in Fairbanks, and it was a little brutal because I interviewed there in February, and it was 70 below, which seemed a little oh cold, oh you know, um, <laughs> but I thought, you know, it's Alaska, so I mean, whatever. Well, I was about to accept the job, and I thought, I'm calling that Kenai Hospital again, and I called up and the, the director of the ER. He goes, I've been looking for your number. We had a guy quit, and I lost your contact, and I couldn't remember your name. So that was how it all, that was like in March. And I came up here in April and found my house, bought the lot next to the house so I could build a lodge on it. Knew, you know, I was only, I mean, I had a realtor. It's like, it's got to be a float plane lake. You know, I'm building a lodge. Found that, bought that lot, and, um, and, you know, I, I had a couple of friends that uh, that were older guys that had been, you know, my hunting dads basically growing up because my dad wasn't a hunter. He was a fisherman, and he had introduced me to these gentlemen, and they said, we, we'd invest in your lodge. You know, they, they had enough confidence in me, I guess. And um, so those were my original two partners. And since they they're they're, they're my dad's age, so they're 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 still alive, but they're sold out. And uh, and I and I built the lodge from scratch. I went down and cut the trees down at Anchor Point to build the lodge. And then I told you about that that first. It was winter of '96. I moved up here in '93. The winter of '95, rather is when we assembled the lodge um and then 96 was the first year we opened so you literally built it from what, what was here and everything yeah we we cut trees down at anchor point which is about halfway to homer um on a log cabin permit that you could get if you were a resident so once i was a resident 
I could like buy, I, I think, it, I can't remember. I think it was like 20 cents a linear foot or something. But you had to go cut the trees yourself, you know, <laughs> yeah. and logs get them out in the winter. So I got to do all of that. I got to live that original dream of mine, which was to be a mountain man. I built a log cabin. I mean, I did it all, but I did it while I was making a living and not, and <laughs> yeah. I didn't really, you know, I mean, I mean, I was still here, you know, I mean, I was still, you know, functioning in society. I didn't turn into the hermit. I thought I was going to be at one time, you know, so. Yeah, that's amazing. Bob, can you, what is a beaver? What, what is a beaver? Yeah. You mean? I'm sure people can Google it, but. Fuzzy little animal. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the beaver is a, is a aircraft that was made by de Havilland and there, there was a DHC two, which is a beaver and a DHC three, which is an otter. And those are the two planes that really sort of rule the bush. Yeah. I mean, they rule Alaska aviation, you know, at least remote aviation and particularly float plane aviation, you know, um, and they were originally military planes, mm -hmm. and there was, I want to say that there were 1,600 beavers made, and there's there's about 600 left because, you know, some of them have been irreparable. You know, I think mine, I want, I want to say mine was built in 1952. It was, what, number 917 of the 1,600. And, uh, you know, I got lucky and found that one. Uh, some poor lawyer had bought a lodge out in Bristol Bay in 2007, right before the crash. Bought it in like September of 2007. In October, it crashed. Had two beavers, and he basically piecemealed it away. So these two beavers were sitting there in Anchorage, and I was looking to upgrade from the 185, which was what I was using back then for my ultimate expeditions, which only allowed me to take three people plus myself. And so... Uh, um, Alan came and scoped them out with me and we bought that beaver. There was two of them and I, well, that was the one that we thought was the better deal. And, and then I've had it now 12 or 13 years. I think I'm on my fourth motor, you know, I mean, they, they, they go for about 1600 hours and you have to get a new one. So. Yeah. That's pretty important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so they, when does, when does, uh, becoming a pilot and learning how to fly come into the equation? Was that after the lodge was built or? <laughs> No, I did it in my third year of residency. So the third year of residency gets pretty easy. You know, the second year is probably the toughest. The third year you start doing a lot of electives, you know, dermatology, radiology, you know, and those months are fairly easy. And so I started uh, scheduling private pilot time, and, and I did it in the very minimum. You know, they say not many people do it in 40 hours of flying time, but I pulled it off in 40 hours because I went regularly. I was in Indianapolis where I did my, my residency, and so I showed up here with a, a pilot's license and really no ability to fly an airplane. I mean, I could take an airplane off a runway and... I could use VORs to find stuff, but I, I knew Alaska flying was going to be a lot different. And when I started my career as an ER doctor here in Soldotna, um, I found out that one of the pediatricians was like the really good bush instructor. He's a wonderful man. He still flies to this day, and he's in his 80s. And um, anyways, I, I contacted him and introduced myself. His name is Dr. Alex Russell, and I said, Alex, I... Here I need to learn. Um, here I need to learn. You know how to fly the bush from you, and uh, I still remember we. Uh, so I had bought a cub, Alan. I'd met Alan through through uh, 
our first year in the lodge, we, we kind of co-mingled Bill Davis, who you met, our, my lodge manager. Um, he had met Alan and, uh, and kind of orchestrated our relationship. And so Alan, uh, helped me find this super cub. And now I needed to learn how to really fly in the bush, you know? So I remember I talked to Alex and I'd, I'd heard about these people doing what it's called is a skidding turn stall. And, you know, having gone through training, I really couldn't understand how anybody could be stupid enough to stall an airplane. You know, <laughs> it's like, because when you, when they make you stall them in your training, you're like, this is so uncomfortable. Why would you keep pulling back on the yoke until this thing quits flying? I mean, it's like, you know, you're going, this is not fun. You know it, you can feel it. You know, it's like, it's, and, and I said, I don't understand how, I said to Alex, I said, I, you know, what scares me is I know people stall airplanes and die. And I'm just, how do you do that? And he said, Robert, that's what he calls me still. He said, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to show you why people, why people die in Alaska crashing airplanes. They stall them. So he made me fly my, my cub up to about 3,500 feet, which is plenty of altitude to recover from a stall. And he said, he said, now he said, Go ahead and set up slow flight. He said, put some flaps in, he said, and slow down to about 60. And he said, now pretend that you're looking at a moose down there. And he said, now, and he said, but instead of doing a coordinated turn, he said, I want you to turn exactly how you're not supposed to do it. Like you're not paying attention. You're paying too much attention to the moose and not enough attention to flying. So I want you to press on the left rudder. So the plane's doing this, but don't coordinate the turn by, by using the ailerons to bank. So you skid. And he said, now just slow down a little bit more, slow down a little bit more, slow down a little bit more. And you're just sitting there flying, you know, you're skidding and you know, things don't feel quite right. And then all of a sudden you're 180 degrees upside down lawn darting. And he's like, I got it. And I let go and he recovers and he goes, okay, now we're going to do that again, except this time you recover. And I'm like, now I get it. And he said, then he taught me how you look at a point. Now, you remember when we went and found those two big bulls? Hopefully, we got some kind of video footage of it. I don't know if you remember, but I was, I was very careful to go out and set up. I figured out where the point was, and I, and I very carefully, um, you point the wing at what you want to look at, and you make a circle around it. People fall out of the sky because they don't understand a skidding turn stall but anyway so that's i i got kind of off on a tangent there <laughs> no, but but uh, that's how i learned to fly i mean you know so i i basically had um you know alex russell teach me really how to fly an airplane because all i knew how to do was take off and land at airports on asphalt and then i was very fortunate in that um you know having talon air alan helfer as as a you know, a, a business partner where I did flyouts years ago when I didn't have the beaver and the commercial pilot's license, I would guide and Alan would fly or Tracy, Alex's dad, who just got in today. Um, Alex, who um, uh, flies the turbine beaver, um, would fly 
and I would guide. So I would sit right seat. Well, I'm learning from guys with tremendous experience in the bush. And Alan's teaching me about what the mountains are going to do to you when the wind's doing this and what those clouds mean. And so, you know, I got several years of bush flying right seat before I had to go put myself out there in those dangerous conditions, you know? And so I was very fortunate in the way the pieces all fell together and I fell in love with flying. I still remember the kid that trained me in, in, um, Indianapolis. He was couple years younger than me and he was just one of these kids that was going through as fast as he could so that he could fly Learjet someday you know so he's building time by being an instructor and when I told him my whole story and what my plan was he goes you know Bob he said you're gonna get up there and you're gonna have an airplane and he goes and because I told him I said I just you know want an airplane so I can hunt and fish and he said you're gonna get up there in Alaska and he goes and you're gonna want to fly more than you hunt and fish. And I'm like, ah, you don't know me very well. You know, and I never called him back. His name was Brad Ray and said, okay, you got me, you know, because I love the flying probably more than even the fishing and hunting. And I love fishing and hunting, you, can, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, but, but, but I mean, I really just dig the flying, flying the bush is so fun. Well, and that's well, so cool about the trips that we do is, and I think people who come up here and do an ultimate expedition, the flight aspect of the weather changing and like, yes, uh, two days ago when we had to skedaddle out of there real quick, like th how the aviation part of it factors into your trip. And it's something after a few of them, I've been able to really appreciate like, wow, this is actually part of the experience learning how the airplane functions and how you're going to get to the next lake. It's, it's really cool to watch you work and do that. And it, it's, yeah, if, I imagine once once you're in it, doing it every day, it's like, okay, this is actually just as fun or more fun than the actual fishing. Yeah, you get a little sick. Um, you, you actually get to where the crappy weather is more engaging than the beautiful, <laughs> bright, sunny days. I mean, because you're, you're, you know, your, your mind's much more active and you're, you're, full, you're physically really flying, you know. Um, it, it, one thing that, you know... It, that that we experienced that shows just how difficult the whole thing is is you know i mean i get up every morning at five and i go try to get some emails done and catch up a little bit in my clerical world because i do have patients in a private practice and phone calls to make and all of that and then by about well, at 6.15, I head down to the lake. At 6.30, I go, I get the plane warmed up, and then I pull it back in, and I think you guys kind of videoed that whole experience. And um, But I'm getting weather, and I'm trying to guess, my best guess of how to, you know, I, I have all these potential options, but I've got to look at what the wind's going to do at those places, how that's going to affect the fishing, and it's all just a guess, right? And, and for example, we, we hit that first spot the first day, and it wasn't optimum. It was fishable. We caught some fish, but we had the wind in our face. Today, I hit that spot. I had it for an hour with four ladies fishing, and they did better than we did, and <laughs> they don't fish, you know, because they hit it perfect. Right. You know, they, I, had, I had a lady never caught a grayling in her life. She caught one on a dry fly. I had another lady catch one on a nymph. Another lady caught one on a spinner. The lady caught a char that was... The, second biggest char that we've caught there this year on a spinner you know i mean just because everything was right i can't control that we went there first because i thought 
you know, get there before the wind blows it out. And it started to get a little bit more. We accomplished some decent stuff there and we took off because I knew that the pressure gradient was moving north and I wanted to get to the next spot before that happened. Now we were very fortunate in that that spot we hit perfect. We yep. had an hour there where it was amazing. Conditions were perfect. The sun was shining. It was just like you couldn't get it any better, right? And then I said, okay, let's get out of here because that wind, start, that gradient showed up and it started hitting us there. And I said, yep. if we get to the other end of the lake, maybe we can get the grayling in before it blows out. And as you guys know, we got there, got set up. Literally, before we could start fishing, we had a wind that was so strong that you basically could, and it was downriver, which just does right. not work for fly fishing. You can't mend, you can't throw a dry fly into it. And it was like, we gave up pretty quickly and said, we'll commit the rest of the day to see if we can scratch some late pike because we were a little late on the spawn because of how warm a spring we had. And that was our first day. It was, it was passable. I wouldn't have ranked it, you know, in the top, uh, it wasn't in the top 20%. It, it was probably, you know, the 50-50 day. You know, it was like, I, I, I'm not embarrassed to have a day like that, especially when, you know, I un at least I understand, I was plagued by conditional problems, yeah, you know. Right, right. But, but look how well we demonstrated that the next day when I took you to the same grayling spot, we hit it with dead calm weather, and we got back late because I didn't have a crowbar to pry you guys off the river. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I mean, it's like, and it's like, well, we're going to be walking on the tundra when we land because I won't get my parking spot because the other planes are going to be in the way, you know, and, and, and it just goes to show you, I mean, and you can't control the weather and I have to try to predict it. And that's all part of the whole puzzle and it makes it tough. And, and, and then, you know, sort of the similar thing happened on the river with with the yeah. one day that you guys fished and went for trout and then the next day the wind was different and they tried a little bit different venue and the and the group next door to you guys hammered some really big trout on the lower river trip when when you guys had a rough day you know condition that we us guides are play we're at the mercy of yeah. god and nature yeah. You know? It's always what we always say is the curse of the camera. Anytime the camera's out, yeah. for some reason the fish gods are like, it's not going to be your day. <laughs> but what I thought was so impressive was, I mean, we showed up, you know, the first day for the flight, and you were just talking through like the weather, you were talking through the wind, you were talking through all these different elements that we aren't thinking about. And you know, we get to the first spot, and we like I could tell your mind was just constantly going because you're thinking about the fishing, you're thinking about the, the flying, where like the areas that we can fly and, you know, we're just there for the ride essentially. But it was also super unique being able to fish for a little bit and then just get back in the plane, take <laughs> off, go to another lake miles away, land there, no wind there. Like you just find a new area um, and we got to fish four different lakes that day. Yep. For what four or five different we hit, species? We hit four spots. Yeah, yeah. that was crazy. Right. It's like yeah. it's like a, even a whole different world between like oh let's hop in the car and bump around and we'll try to find somewhere that's not windy today or whatever. Like it's it's like you hop in the plane and you're on a different mountain range. Like you're like a totally different mountain you know area around you to be able to you know block the wind or you know change what what the wind's doing. It was mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah. Well, I tell you one thing I've learned from doing these ultimates, which now I've been doing, like, I guess I'm pushing 20 something years on these things is you're smart if you can convince the people to go to the best weather rather than be over 
obsessed with a particular fish species or experience like you know well we really want to kill something to take home well for me that's salmon because we don't kill grayling and lake trout and char and rainbows you know what there's halibut out in the ocean they come you know they're the biomass of that ocean is massive if you want meat you go there you want experiential stuff you come with me on an ultimate but i don't want to hear a bunch of whining that we're not whacking everything we bring in you know i mean and i flat out tell them i mean if you read my ultimate description it says do not book this trip if you're going to be disappointed if you're not killing things okay because it doesn't that it, some days during seasons when I can fish for salmon, it's like, we can't go that direction. And you purchased the plane for that day. Right. You're, and if I can put on a good day, you, you're paying for it. You know, now if it's like, I'm not going to make people go out if it's going to be, hey, we're going to get beat to death and get wet. And I'm going to have a hard time showing you a good experience. In fact, I'm the opposite. I'm trying to talk you out of going and I want to give you a refund. And the, and the people are like, well, this is a trip we really, really wanted to do. Would you, well, I mean, you know, it's going to be safe, but it's not going to be fun, but I'll go do my best, you know, and, and I hate those days, you know, um, but the, the long story short is, you know, the, the smart thing to do as the pilot is take people to where the experience is going to be nice, because if you don't enjoy the places that I took us to those two days and that overall experience, I don't want you as a client again, yeah. you know, because yeah. you're too hard to please, man. I mean, if that didn't do it for you, I mean, you know, every place, every stop is not always going to be perfect. Just because it's Alaska doesn't mean the fish are going to be, you know, taking the fly out of your hand while you're tying it on, <laughs> you know, I mean, some days they just about do, some you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. but, but, you know, you can't expect that, you know, go back to the spell of the Yukon. Yeah. It isn't the gold that I wanted so much as just finding the gold. Enjoy the experience. Oh, That's yeah. what the ultimate expedition is completely about. Yeah. If they didn't like that, I think they still need to see you, but it's on the other professional side of things. I'm not a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, I'm not a psychiatrist. I can't I know, help man. there. You, you helped me out with some stuff when we were out there. <laughs> Talking about nightmares. Yeah, yeah, you, helped, you helped me get some stuff into perspective when we were out there, whether it was <laughs> whether you meant to or not. Good, good. I'm glad. No, that was that's but, definitely awesome. So it, it really kind of almost sounds like you, you essentially went to pilot school to get your pilot's license. I don't know a lot about flying, but it sounds to me like you kind of went to pilot school to get your license, but then and then you came up here and went to like bush pilot school, like right and pilot was, school two point and God yeah. just put me in touch with like the, the just exactly the right people. And for you know, he just led me. And for context for that, tell them the story about Alan and how he learned how to fly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, Allah, if I, hopefully this is not, so, so, so Alan Helfer and Doug Brewer are probably the two best pilots on planet earth. Okay. I mean, I'm, and I'm not, I, mean, I say that not in, I mean, I'm talking, these guys are amazing, right? Well, they're 12 year old kids in high school and they're best friends. Right. And one of the dads is a oil field worker and i might mess this up but alan tells this story and i'm gonna try to repeat it as close as i can and and um so i guess uh 
the dad has a little, I want to say, one of the smaller, maybe a tri-pacer or something, a side-by-side two-seater, and it's wintertime. And actually, wintertime's the easiest time to learn on skis because you can always land into the wind, so you don't have to deal with any crosswind component, and you're always landing on a nice flat runway, and the whole world's a runway, right? Because every lake is a frozen <laughs> lake, and it's pretty smooth and flat. That adds up. So the dad teaches Alan and Doug how to taxi on the lake and he's teaching them how to work the rudders and and just teaching them how to use the controls these two 12 year old boys and and then he goes off for his stint in the oil field and he tells them you guys can work on taxiing and just get used to controlling the airplane so of course alan and and doug are in the plane side by side and they're out taxiing around on the lake while dad's gone off on the slope working and and they're taxiing along and they're practicing turning and i think doug was behind the thing you know and and they're going along and you know they're getting a little little bit more comfortable and going a little faster and all of a sudden you know the plane like kind of picks up and starts flying and then they pull back and and they kind of looked at each other and go well heck we can fly so they fly like they're flying <laughs> and get, dad's gone right now they don't know anything about that they don't understand he, they have not been taught what a coordinated turn is now these are two of the most athletic human beings on the on the planet okay i mean alan shoots trap and if he's shooting regularly he's one of the top six in the country i mean he's you know these guys are just amazing you know coordinated people but anyways i guess so what happens is the dad comes home and 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 says okay well you guys get your taxi and practicing oh yeah yeah we, we've been sure. taxiing dad yeah <laughs> so so it's like okay well uh i guess we'll go do some flying we'll, and so you know i guess doug gets in the plane with dad you know doug's it's dad, doug's dad and and um i guess uh you know dad says okay well and, and doug's like yeah i got this <laughs> and, and he's like he said his dad just looks at him and goes he knew right then they'd, <laughs> they'd exactly been flying the on. whole time you know so they're a little bit lucky that they're alive because obviously <laughs> yeah. there are some things that a 12 year old probably doesn't intuitively <laughs> understand about coordinated flight you know but they got through that, and, and, you know, they're like I said, they're both just incredible. And, uh, you know, they, uh, Doug Brewer was the guy that was sitting in the beaver that made me become a beaver pilot. And basically, Alan's the guy that taught me to fly the bush, you know. And, and you know, I mean, I, you know, I'm, who knows if I would have survived that experience, you know, without the mentorship that he provided me. You know, and then he becomes a partner in this lodge and just a blessing you know i mean god puts people in your lives that need to be there and you know if you're smart you pay attention and you accept them <laughs> yep you can't make that story up no that's amazing yeah and he's been learning from these guys his, yeah his yeah, entire career so w- what's what's like what does that look like then transitioning from just a pilot to the bush pilot and what you know like what elements are different what things are maybe more dangerous when you're flying in the bush that you maybe had to learn? Well, so a lot of things. Okay. Um, first of all, just to go back to, you know, Alan and what amazing pilot he is, you know, so like we go out and I'm, I'm current because I, I, I had my, you know, I had to, but I had to get my, my, um, uh, my, uh, uh, check ride from him and it's just amazing you know i mean i've got 
3,500 hours and I'm flying the bush. And it's like the stuff that he teaches me still at this point, you know, just refinements in my technique just a couple weeks ago. You know, it's like just in that, you know, it's like, God, man, I got, you know, and, he, and he's, he's, he's a little brass about it. You know, it's kind of like you got to you gotta have a thick skin, you know, but it's yeah. like I, I, when I got done, I kind of said, okay, so here's the four things that I learned today that I won't forget. And I, and literally I'm applying them every day now when I fly, they were subtle. It's not like I was being unsafe, but he made me better, you know, but what, there's a lot of things that are different about the bush. Okay. First of all, most places you fly, there's no mountains. So, airflow is more laminar it's less turbulent so mountains do all kinds of crazy stuff so you got to become a weatherman you've got to learn how to get aviation weather and understand what it means and what it's going to do to you there can be a situation where the wind the prevailing wind is like this direction and say that pass that we were flying through is this direction well you can have a situation where there's a pretty good prevailing wind that's maybe say 20, 30 miles an hour, 6,000 feet, okay? And that's about where the tops of the mountains of Lake Clark pass it. And you could have a pressure gradient of 15 millibars on this side of the mountain range versus that side, which means there's gonna be a Venturi effect and air trying to equalize through there. So now what you have is where this air and this air right there, don't get there, okay? That's not a fun place. You know, because you've got two air masses that are colliding and it's just a turbulent area. So you have all of that to consider. Then you have the visibility issues, right? I mean, you're flying through mountain passes. You have fog, morning fog. Now, most of Alaska is Class G airspace, which means that we have to be clear of the clouds and a mile of visibility. So we're flying like that a lot low ceilings not being able to have not great forward visibility creeping up to mountain range i tried to get over gladiator basin again today and came back through current creek again you know couldn't couldn't go see the bears again today i thought i'd be able to um windy t was incorrect about uh the twelve thousand foot ceiling that was going to be there by four o'clock it was not you know uh there was a bit more of a pressure gradient than what I had thought there would be when I got weather this morning and it was coming from the Cook Inlet side which is where all the moisture is and up that glacial valley and it made a cloud right on top of the glacier and it was like well went there went back over cut down went back through Lake Clark again so you know you've got visibility you've got um uh the the wind to deal with you know the mountainous terrain that makes you know turbulent airflow and then you know you've got to always be thinking about what if my motor stops which you know when you're when you're a private pilot in the lower 48 what if my motor stops is i'm landing in a farm field or on a road <laughs> Okay. Right. When you're in Alaska and you've got floats underneath you, I'm thinking which wet spot looks the safest. You know, I mean, so, you know, the pass in certain places I have memorized, you know, I mean, I know where all my ditch spots are and I know when I'm in a spot where, you know, it's going to be sketchy. Um, anytime you take off from a lake, you know, like here where we have almost like Minnesota 
on your climb out, you're using those, the next ditch spot, you know, you're, you're altering your course for the time when that piston motor stops working. Now I've never had that happen in 3,500 hours where that's close enough, um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, you, 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 so there's a lot more to it than just, you know, flying back and forth, you know, climbing up to 7,000 feet and putting the next airport in and, you know, and, oh, you know, your motor quit. Obviously, I mean, any pilot motor quits, you probably get a little bit, you know, uh, but I mean, if you're at 7,000 feet and you're in the flatlands, you know, you're probably going to find a pretty safe place to touch down. You know, you, you're in the bush. It's not all runways, you know, and if you got floats underneath you, I mean, you know, like a, I try to, you know, like you guys were commenting when we were pretty close to the ground. But if you notice when we were pretty close to the ground, it was usually flat ground. It was Bare, not is tundra. Yeah, it was yeah. tundra, yeah. which is like a survivable, you know, it's like, yeah, things are going to be bent up. It's not going to be a great situation, but we're all walking away. Right. You know, um, I'm not just skimming the tops of, you know, dense old growth forest because <laughs> that's right. not a good place to, you know, I mean, that's bad, you know, so you're trying to get altitude when you're over those kind of areas. So you have some glide. So I'd say that's probably the biggest difference is, you know, you have to always be thinking that, well, I think they talk about this in driver's ed, the, you're always knowing you're out, you know, in, in, Bush aviation, it's even more important. Yeah. You, yeah. you didn't yeah. pass driver's ed, did you? No. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> didn't pass that. <laughs> <laughs> you, what, what, what'd you clap out? Yeah, I don't know. I just, I, the test, there's a so right, red, right, return. There's I don't know where words. that came into play. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that Alabama driver's yeah. ed is tough. <laughs> yeah, it's tougher than the rest of the country, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, Besides the flying, which I think the flying is is incredible, and I think it adds a little bit of risk. You know, I think that's one of the things that I notice is like, as my first time ever going up in a bush plane, and so I was a little, you know, I was excited, but at the same time, you are flying in the mountains. Like you said, there's a lot of dangerous things that can happen at any time. Your motor could just, you know, skimp out. Um, so that was, you know, part of, and I think that's maybe part of the adventure. Mm -hmm. So part of the maybe the draw, uh, probably to to flying and to people who come up and do this. But I w I'm, I'm curious off of that, like, or off track of that, the more so the fishing side of things, how that kind of works, that ecosystem works together when it comes from the salmon and the trout and the char and like the pike, how does that whole ecosystem work together? Cause we got to see it from in the plane from a wide angle, um, from literally from the ocean all the way to the glaciers, which was amazing. But how does that ecosystem work together for the fishing? Well, I mean, so, you know, the difference, I, I'm kind of jealous of you guys that, that get to kind of be in these, these small streams and you're matching the hatch because it kind of almost feels a little bit more like what I grew up. You know, my, my scientific fishing was bass fishing when I was in college and med school i was an avid bass fisherman it's very scientific you're patterning the fish you know and uh um in alaska everything revolves around the salmon because it's such a massive amount of biomass that all the other fish that we target 
you know, are keying on as their main food source. So obviously you have the salmon themselves, which you can fish for, which are timed and they're different in every river. But then all of the other fish that rely on the salmon as their food source are tied to that timing. And this is like a very unusual year. I think I told you guys, I mean, it rained here yesterday for the second time since about April 20th. And that's not Soldatna. Okay. We're in June. And yeah, and we're in the second half of June, you know, I mean, and so that is not Soldatna, you know? Um, so when, when conditions are, radically abnormal it affects things so because there's not as much water and runoff in all these rivers and the salmon are imprinted on the scent from that ground actually where they that flowed into the river where they were reared they're late it's messing up everything you know um so it's it's you know it is all tied together now what we typically see like the place we fished, the very first lake that I took you to. And there was those lake trout. Clearly, there was plenty of them stacked right on that drop-off where that creek dumped in. Well, in another, I don't know, two or three, maybe four weeks, because, again, maybe the lack of moisture is going to have things delayed, there's going to be sockeye salmon stacked. There will be hundreds and hundreds of them right there on that shelf. And they will spawn there, and those fry or those smolt will will the eggs will hatch in that creek and the smolt will live in that creek or, or the the fry will develop in that creek turn into smolt and they'll out migrate the next year which is why those fish are there they were those char and those lake trout and the grayling are feeding on those out migrating smolt early um Obviously, the grayling are also going to take advantage of the fact that there's probably an insect population that lives in that creek that we were fishing in front of. And on a warm, sunny day with a good hatch, they'll be rising. You know, I've seen that spot, just grayling just flipping out of the water, just just like boiling with grayling when conditions were perfect, you know. Now, eventually, those salmon are in there laying eggs everything eats salmon eggs, you know? I mean, so then they key on the, the eggs and eventually those salmon die and that flesh starts to release into the system. And most of those fish will also eat salmon flesh. And, you know, that's the, the cycle that we're trying to follow. That is kind of the main, you know, what, where are we? In that cycle, what are the fish king on? Are they are they small eating small? Are they feeding on the eggs? Is it a flesh bite? You know, I used to fish steak and eggs, okay, which is you use a bead with a flesh fly as the hook instead of just a bare hook. Works great. Why, why choose if you can just give them both? Let them make their own decision, you know? Nothing illegal but that because the bead has, it's not fishing two lures. Right. It's fishing one lure. You just, your hook's dressed like a different yeah. lure, you know? So, um, but there, you know, you can catch fish on mouse patterns and you can catch fish on, and I mean, I've caught grayling on mouse patterns, you know? Yeah, yeah we did it yesterday. Yeah. Pike, at least. Or, sorry, pike, yeah. 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 Ma- matching the hatch is different because, you know, at home, it's like, oh, the caddis or the, 
mayflies or the you know, whatever. Here it's like we're it, you're like matching the hatch of salmon. Exactly. Like you're like following the life cycle of the salmon, and and that's it's pretty freaking cool. Yep. And 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 then like you said, you know, I mean, like I said, the you know the runs are all different. You know, and eventually you learn the various rivers and the typical timing of the runs, and you know, for like targeting the salmon themselves. You know. So it's all, you know, it's, everything's all blended together and, you know, it's, 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 it's a great experience. I love, you know, each season and I, and what I love about Alaska is that like, I'll, I'll miss that lake trout spot. I love to go there. Every, the, the place where we had it, where everything was perfect. Probably oh, the most awesome. perfect stop we had oh, yeah. was that lake trout spot. I mean, Adam, I think I, 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 well, I remember exactly. I said, you know, um, um, it was flat calm. I, I showed you guys right, you know, kind of how to just throw the flies out, let them sink. I think I hooked one. It got off. I caught one. I said, okay, I'm good. You guys got this. I'm going to go take the plane off so you guys can take some pictures of takeoffs and landings because it was beautiful, right? And before I got to the plane, I turned around and they, you guys were doubled up. And yeah. I'm like, oh, that's going to work. You know, and then I did two takeoffs and landings. And I came back. By the time I got back, you were done fishing. You were like, Scotty, it's your turn, you know, yeah, yeah. Which, which I was really impressed with because I see a lot of selfish people. <laughs> I do. You know, I mean, I see guys that don't really care if their girlfriends or their wives catch fish. I see dads oh. that, you know, <laughs> you, you, well, you know, I do, you know, yeah. and it's like. And, and I immediately was impressed with how it was like you, you, it was important to you that your partner got the spot because he was doing the filming first, yeah, you know? Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it's like, I'll miss that spot, but that spot will die here. In another week or two, those fish will move off of that shelf. They'll go deeper. And, uh, and then because other things will be happening – I don't even know if they come back. Maybe that's a great place to fish in September during the spawn. Maybe those fish come up. I'll never get there because I'm stuck chasing silver salmon. Right. You know, I mean, it's like, no, I'm, nobody wants me to fly. That's one of the farthest places I go to. There's nobody going to be chirping at me to take them there for lake trout. And I mean, I'd have to go <laughs> try it to figure it out. You know, we, we, we went and tried a, a spot today um, because the, the, the guests that I had wanted to do a tourism related thing that was nearby. And I knew it was a little early and we caught a couple char and handful of lake trout. Um, and I just kind of patterned everything real quick and confirmed that, yes, this is as normal, a 2000 foot lake instead of a 400 foot lake. Um, it's not happening yet, which is what I would have expected. But hey, you know what? I wasn't going to not gain that information, you know. Right. So I went and checked it out real quick because we were three miles from there to go to the tourism spot. So, uh, you know, it, it's it the season evolves. I get to do something different about every two weeks. It's almost like it's nothing like what I was doing two weeks ago. You yeah. Know? That's cool. I think one of the big aspects that we should hit on is the reason that we're here in June which is probably a little earlier than most uh, tourist season hits. Um, but we decided to come in June because when we got talking to you, you said that there was this thing called the June Slam. And when you hit us with that, I was like, oh, hold up. I'm, in, I'm interested in this. So can you tell us what the seven – there's seven fish that are all eat, catchable within June – could you tell us what those seven fish are and kind of what makes that really unique and why June, 
why is it the June slam and not the August slam or the September slam? Well, I, there's a few things that I really like about June. One is the weather. Okay. Uh, we, our weather is best in June. July's next. August is next. And then by September, you will get systems that come through. And if you looked at the satellite view, like I look at as part of my weather every day, you go, well, if that's in the Gulf of Mexico, it gets a name. You know, I mean, well, I mean, it looks like a, it looks like a hurricane. It's got an eye and pinwheels and it covers the whole state and it wipes out everything for two or three days. Now, in between those systems, you have some of the most amazing fishing in the world. The rainbows are third heavier because they've been gorging on all that stuff we talked about. Smolt and then eggs, and now they're chewing flesh up, and they're just getting fatter and fatter, and then you're up against, they're up against, man, it's fixing to be dark, and we're going to be under the ice again for seven months. we got to pack on that last bit of fat, and you're up there fishing with Zach and, you know, or Jim or Monty, and you're hammering these massive, you know, stupid-looking giant fish, right? But um, this time of year, the weather's nice. Secondly, you know, we're not... We weren't full this week. Now, we were full today, but, you know, I mean, our early June is we've got room. And it's a great time for fly fishing. Um, there's a couple of things that are unique about this time of year. One is the big giant pike, and we didn't really get to hit that. And again, weather. I told you how warm it was. The spawn happened. Normally, this week would have been prime, and, I, and it contained the opener of rainbow trout and it turns out we were so hot the pike were in post spawn by the time we got to them okay so some of my really good giant pike spots we caught i think we caught a pair of late spawners at the first stop yeah that's what we caught because i had taxied around there two days before and i only saw five fish and Typically, if I land in taxi and just, you know, up with when the conditions are right and I can see well in the water, I might see 50. You know, I mean, there's just pike shooting. Oh, did you see the size of that one? You know, and then we go, then we go beach the plane, get out and start hammering them. Well, yeah. we miss that. Okay. But in a normal year this week, we would be at the, the, the end of the spawn and we would have hit that. So big pike. Okay, now I can get you on pike any time of year, but it'd be like the little fish that we were catching in that cove the second day. Oh, and then no. we, and then we, the, the one that ate the mouse. Yeah. The yeah where they the were eating mice and we caught 50 of them. In right. <laughs> yeah. But then, but then we, then we moved off the point and found the post spawn big fish and caught some decent fish. So there's pike. So there's species one. And quite frankly, of, of all the fly fishing fish, that's the fish I can target earliest. I mean, I think I had a picture. I showed you guys a picture where I took Brett and my super cub a couple of years ago, and we went on May 27th, and we pounded them. I mean, it was like yeah. after about seven or eight, I go, hey, Brett, could could I would would you let can i catch a couple with my fly rod and he goes yeah my arms are tired dad <laughs> you know he was nine at the time i go would you film me and he got some great video footage of me you know i'm like God, the kid's got the camera eye good <laughs> maybe he'll be like you guys when he grows up oh, you, um, don't, you don't want so that. <laughs> um the second earliest fish that's really reliable is probably the grayling and and grayling 
the nice thing about grayling is I can catch grayling from late May all the way till the end of September. I mean, the places will vary and I'll be moving around, but I always know places. Uh, again, always at the mercy of the weather. But if I can land anywhere I want and the conditions are proper, I got grayling spots that are that are great, you know. So grayling and, and grayling are a great fish. Um, they're they're a great fish to get a beginner fly fisherman hooked. I've seen people cast a dry fly and, and not to criticize the fish, but they are dumb as posts most of the time. <laughs> now the place, the, some places where they get fished a lot and the water's really clear, they can be tough to catch. But I have seen, you know, a beginning fly fisherman cast a fly rod, you know, terrible cast comes down like spaghetti. The dry fly lands in the center of the spaghetti and a fish comes shooting through it, you know, honest to God. I mean, that's, that's not like that's happened once in my life. I've seen that a bunch, you know, great description. So, yeah. so it's a great experience to take, get a person hooked. You know, my daughter, I got a picture of at Kijik Lake when she was five, a 20 inch grayling. That's a, one of the, my, my, in fact, it's in cabin one also, you know, and then, you know, I, I had her, last year or the year before we went fishing there again and you know she's 17 year old she's running around here working here in the in the lodge and uh you know and now she's i mean she doesn't she's not an expert fly fisherman but you know she can probably outfish the average guy fly fishing just because she's got to do it quite a bit you know yeah that would, it, that would ruin you i feel like <laughs> if you if you if that was your first experience with dry flies you would be like this is awesome <laughs> and then you would go to tennessee and be like wow <laughs> right what happened to yeah why don't they bite <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong but so 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 that's the second fish and of course you can catch grayling on light spin and tackle you can catch them on dry flies they're great to nymph with and so i had a, no idea you could catch them on dries yeah they're, i they're, thought it was like a nit like nymphs and yeah, little they, small streamer stuff mostly and and you got it you know you guys had a and and i want to say your, your your casting was amazing um and you you know that particular place that we were fishing the fish weren't in there in any kind of numbers like i have seen at times they were pretty spread out some of the rises were pretty far away and you were doing a great job nailing them and <laughs> getting some really long dead drifts in and you know i mean a, a lot of times I, I if i have somebody that's never fly fished my, my goal is to just get them one grayling on a fly rod i mean and i feel like i've you know and, and then let them catch lake trout and whatever on a spinner but it's like i want everybody to get a grayling on a fly rod because it's like hey you've been to alaska you caught a grayling on a fly rod you know that's one of my yeah. things i try to do on the ultimate expedition so and you can always switch to beads too. Once the salmon get in, they they start they'll hit beads just like anything will. So you've got grayling, so that's two. Um, we've got Arctic char, which everything over on that side of the mountain range is Arctic char. And I think I might have explained to you that Arctic char and Dolly Varden are nearly identical species. In fact, you have to be a biologist to technically tell the difference. Um, I think it has something to do with the number of fimbrae, which is a little appendage that comes off of the stomach. And, you know, the dollies have 17 to 23 and char have, you know, 23 to 32 or something crazy <laughs> like that, you know. But, of course, the taxonomist can tell you what species you're fishing for. So I know that, like, when we were over there, we caught, we were catching char and we caught a couple char there. Now, um, you know, I've had experiences there at that spot where we didn't have the conditions perfect, where we 
really, really hit some big ones and caught a lot. And last year was really good. We didn't do as well this year for whatever reason in the few times that I've been out there. Haven't gotten skunked. We caught a handful today and uh, one of the ladies on a spinner caught a really nice one that was colored up beautifully. So there's char. Well, we've got the Dolly Varden also. Dollies are on this side. We have several different fly out places on this side of the world for dollies. And of course the Kenai River, those are Dolly Varden and you I'm sure caught some on the upper river drift. Um, now there's also sea run dollies. So a lot of the rivers that flow into the salt have those dollies following the salmon up this time of year and they're you know they are tormenting that spawn they they follow they're, they're not going to spawn until until the fall in those rivers but they are literally trailing those sockeyes and ultimately the silvers into the rivers to eat the eggs the flesh and then at the end of the year they spawn and that's when they become really beautiful and instead of being more of a silvery fish you get that amazing um, pastel coloration, you know, not so much iridescent, but literally painted like a pastel. But yeah, just it's like the orange and the green, greens, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, just awesome, super cool. And the pink dots with a white halo around them. I mean, they're just amazing. So that 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 gives us four species, and then of course you have rainbow trout, which uh, you know is a uh, um, everybody comes to Alaska for for rainbow trout native and, I, rainbows, right? um, and they're yep. natives obviously yeah and i'd never caught a native rainbow trout before this trip mm-hmm. right which is so, really cool nice so so that's five um and then um um we've got salmon right now so uh you sockeye salmon is mainly what we have coming in this time of year um we, we, we get a progression. Uh, the Kenai River gets four of the five species of Pacific salmon. It gets sockeye salmon first. Kings come in about the same time. Um, kings are in pretty poor returns right now. They're closed right now due to low returns, some of which is probably due to the same things we're talking about, the lack of water. I don't know that we can really predict what kind of run we're going to have, but at this point, the escapements are so low, we can't fish them. Till we, you know, maybe they're going to show up in a big wad and they'll open it. I kind of doubt it. Um, we do get a humpback salmon. They would be next in line to come in. Um, when they come in, they come in by the millions. Um, I'll tell you a quick story about humpback salmon. You know, uh, back when I used to guide on the river like Monty and Jim, I had this young kid, and the first day, it was a humpy year, and we talk about even and odd years, and humpies on the Kenai are even year fish. So it's 2022, so we're going to get a bunch of humpies this year. And when when there's a bunch, it makes it really tough to target silvers, which sort of come in a little bit later, but the humpies overrun, and they're very voracious meat eaters, and they're super strikers. So you throw a spinner, you throw a fly, you're you're catching a humpy, and you're trying to weed through them to get to the silvers. And so I can remember this kid. I had him for three days, you know, and uh, the first day, you know, he's 10 years old. I think his name was Mike, and... You know, he's sitting up in the front of the boat and he's casting spinners and he's hooking humpies and he's the king, right? He thinks he's Roland Martin, right? I mean, he's like, you know, dad, I got another one. You know, I mean, I'm netting the fish and we're releasing them, you know, and, you know, we're trying to get these, these silvers, you know, I mean, the whole point is to get the silvers to take home because humpies is, are not that valuable in terms of uh, their, their table. They're edible. Okay. Especially if you catch them out in the salt. Well, anyways, the third day, you know, the kid's like, 
oh no another humpy you know i mean i'm like mike i was your hero three days ago what happened you know but so humpies you got a humpback salmon and and you know what great for fly fishing great for beginning fly fishing because they come in by the millions i mean we get a million or two million of them and they bite I mean, so they're awesome for kids to catch. And they're big enough yeah. that, you know, you have to know how to, they could, you, you, look, you get a steady diet of learning how to fight a heavy fish on a fly rod and lots of bites to miss and not worry, you know. And then, and then we get silvers and they're my favorite sport fish, to be honest. I mean, silver salmon are, they're beautiful in a very, in a very, uh, um, subtle, just, you know, silver with some black dots and just a hint of iridescence. And they're pretty when they transform into the spawning colors. They, f you know, they fight similar to a rainbow. The second you set the hook, they're jettisoning out of the water. They grow huge, you know, and they come in in tremendous numbers and they're aggressive. So they 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 just have everything that you would want in a fish, you know. Um, so, you know, the, the, that's kind of the progression of the salmon run. And I'm trying to think of what our seventh the lake trout. Oh gosh. How could I forget lake <laughs> trout? My lake gosh, trout. my gosh. So I, I kind of jumped past lake trout. Um, lake trout are available on the ultimate expedition from pretty much as early the, the time I took Brett on May 27th, a couple years ago, and we caught the pike at at the spawning beds we went over to the lake trout spot and we just we did fine there so they're pretty much when you know they're from ice out till the fall they're i got to chase them in different places but the, i can always find lake trout and they are um a great fly fishing species it's taken me a while to you know and 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 of course the technique the the companies like that that make the nice heavy sinking lines you know, and kind of figuring out how to get that done. But uh, when I first started fishing lake trout, I did it all by float tube, just a full sinking line, get out there, get on the drop off and troll paddling. So, yeah, so there's your seven fish, the lake trout. Um, I've grown to appreciate them more and more. Their, their coloration, they're so beautiful. You saw some of the ones we got up there oh, yeah. at the second well, both spots yeah. they were pretty you know yes. Yes. Um, anytime you get into pretty clear water they tend to have a lot of orange and yellow and get really pretty if you're catching them in a heavily glacially silted setting um they'll they'll be a lot paler more silver but we caught beautiful lake trout in two different locations yeah and the one spot they get pretty big you know so and then um at crescent west uh um, Dan, who, who I had today with, with some of his clients on the ultimate, he was fishing Crescent West and they were trolling some plugs along the drop-offs and they got some 13 pounders. Um, so, uh, you know, we've got all those species available and, you know, they're all decent fish to fly fish for. Um, you know, like I said, if you you want to target the silvers and come late and you're willing to gamble on getting a hurricane for three days you know <laughs> that doesn't have a name it's not a bad time to come but there's really this place is is uh is quite the quite the venue for june and you know i think looking at next year 
were a little snookered because the opener at Trout this year was on a Saturday, which meant that if you came, we typically do Sunday to Sunday, and it's like if you came Sunday to Sunday, you were only going to get one day of trout fishing. Um, And so you guys came the next week. So next year it's on a Sunday, which is changeover day. And I got to thinking, you know, we're about half full these two weeks this year. I think next year it's going to be like, you know what, if you want to come Wednesday to Wednesday, that's the week. I would come Wednesday to Wednesday and put June 11th in the middle of it, and I'll just deal with the fact that I'm not doing Sunday to Sunday. But that way you'll get – and you plan ultimates Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then you start trout fishing on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and then go home on Wednesday. That's what I think is going to be the hot setup for this next year until we get where that opener of trout gets more midweek, you know? Yeah. So – I kind of retrospectively kind of went, that's what I should have done with these guys, you know, but oh, well, it worked, it worked, always out, 2020. It worked out, man. We got, yeah. we oh, got yeah. all seven species. Yeah. We, we got a, uh, a sockeye right before we know. started the podcast. So, yep. And, and the other thing was Alex came up uh, a couple days early and I sent him out with, uh, one of my good friends who, who fishes the Kenai on the opener every year from the bank i think you guys went and fished some of the spots that yeah just walk in and alex caught a a beautiful dolly i mean on that trip it's probably a five pound dolly and and it's it's on the in in fact you can see it if you go to our instagram page it was like that thing was beautiful so um you know and that and that was totally freelance just hiking into the kenai river and yeah drifting you get, you get that on a bug or beads i forget I, I, we fished both but it probably was a, a, a meat pattern so but i mean it was a great day of fishing we caught rainbows caught dollies both on the flesh flies and on bugs so i mean it was phenomenal and there's another nice um freelance rainbow fishery that normally would be pretty hot right now that's probably a little behind schedule again because of what the water conditions are which is the russian river which is a great little probably a lot closer to what you guys typically think of as a trout river you know a clear water rocky bottom pretty good visibility insects this time of year once the sockeyes get up in there you got to switch over to the egg patterns but uh we're doing that tomorrow yeah yeah now you can't fish eggs until august 20th so yeah this, we'll be you, fishing you knew bugs. that yeah, yeah. That, but i got friends that do bugs and mice yeah i Ooh. mean yeah i i got friends that go fish that and catch them on mice, we'll throw some mice so in there. when you're in alaska you gotta throw a mouse yeah. Oh, yeah come on now yeah so there's there's i really like june you know i i i, I kind of hate to see june leave because you know it's been shirt sleeve weather and a lot of sunshine and i haven't got beat up bad yet in the airplane you know and uh uh, this morning was probably the first day i really dealt with any low visibility fog even you know and then trying to come back over gladiator basin you know and just had to turn around because it made clouds that was no big deal i didn't i wasn't pushing nothing you know but kind of looked at it went well we're not going that way (laughs) yeah Yeah. i would say one of the one of the things that we were talking about before this uh, that we're just curious to hear from you is, you know, this lodge has been open, what, almost, you said 27 years, 
almost 30 years, right? 1996 was our first year, so you guys helped me. I used to could do math really good in my head, but now <laughs> I need to calculate. Four years? No, because 96 to 2002, 26. 28, 27, I think 27, this is our 27th year. 27, yeah. 96 okay. was the first year, so this would be our 27th year, yeah. So, so what do you think, that, like, what has made this lodge so successful, and how has it evolved over the years? Well... To be honest, um, it, it, it was really, really a learning curve for me. I mean, when we started this lodge, the entire advertising venue was the show circuit, right? And that was about the time when websites and the internet came out. What's the and, show? Real quick, what's the oh, show circuit? Oh, the show circuit? So sports shows. Okay. So like in most people's major metropolitan areas, there's at least a show or two every year. Maybe in Houston, we had the Houston Boat Show. I mean, yeah. and, and, and like in, oh, you know, in California, there's quite a few of them. And there's some boat shows and there's some outdoor shows. And, you know, in Minnesota, there's the Minneapolis Boat Sport and Travel Show. And Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, there's the biggest one. I think it gets a million people in 10 days. I mean, so these are places where you set up a booth and you have pictures of what you offer and you have brochures and people come in and talk to you um and um and and, and i did that for the first six seven eight years i went out and did the sports show circuit you know and it was it was a little frustrating it, it, you know, there's parts of it that are nice. You're getting out of Alaska and you're sort of writing off your travel and you're, you know, going out to decent places to eat dinner and you're meeting people. But, man, answering the same questions over and over again, it starts to get maddening. And the tire kickers, the people that come in and act all, you know, they ask you 47 questions, almost like this podcast, right? You know, <laughs> and then and then at the end of it, they go and then at the end of it, they go. Yeah, my uncle lives in Homer. I go there every summer. And you're like, <laughs> because there's like five people that walked away because the guy wouldn't quit asking questions. Right. And he just wants to tell you about how his uncle has, a, but he, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, so it's like, I, I was glad when that was over, but I wasn't exactly an early adopter of the internet either. You know, I looked at the internet initially as a giant phone book that you couldn't get found in. And I thought the only usefulness of, was a, of a website was you build your website so you can send people to it because it was a platform where you could describe yourself. Like an online you, brochure. Right. Your, so it was an online brochure. And I didn't look at it as this yeah. is how I'm going to find people to market to. This is a way to the people that I find to market to. I'll send them there because I can do a good job. I can organize my thoughts well, and I can help set up a website with somebody that knows what they're doing um, that would allow people to see what we have. And if they're done reading my website and I'm not for them, they, I'm not for them. I don't need to talk to them, you know? And so that was how I approached it for quite a while. Um, and really wouldn't bite on the search engine optimization. And then, you know, I tried magazine ads to try to drive people to the website. And those were mostly throwing money away. And I, I burned plenty of money on you know, a couple magazines that I did. Gray Sporting Journal worked out well for us years ago. And so did Shooting Sportsman because kind of I fill a niche, Tarmigan Hunting. I'm, 
I'm probably the world's expert on ptarmigan, actually. You know, I can go out and shoot all three species in a day, and not many people on planet Earth probably can say that, you know. Um, so that niche I kind of own. I mean, and even it's not a high competition. So, I mean, it's like even long ago we SEO'd like number one, you know, and I still pretty much occupy very high. So I, I'm, I start in September, I'm ptarmigan hunt almost every day. Um, but the, I eventually realized that, you know, you were going to have to embrace this. And I went through a few SEO companies that just robbed me because there was lots of them out there. And then finally a local guy, um, that his wife is actually a physician I worked with. I heard he was doing good things for some of the other lodge businesses. And so I, I visited with him and he helped me build a website and he got it where it was found, where, where you could find us. And pay-per-click started coming in and he really poo-pooed that. So I never used it. And um, eventually I got convinced by another SEO company that uh that he didn't understand some of the newer stuff as as mobile devices started becoming more and more prominent in how people searched and my website was not well optimized for that and this guy's about my age he was becoming a bit of a dinosaur and they sort of proved that to me and so I, I, I fired him, I mean, in a nice way, but I said, you know, I'm going to go with these other groups. And, and they turned out to kind of be a high volume, low service industry. And so I kind of killed my website because it was pretty well optimized. And when I let them rebuild it, I lost like 10 years of optimization that the other guy had built. So I went from ranking really well in a lot of different venues to all of a sudden, um, you couldn't find me, but I had this new website that was a lot nicer. Fired them, found another guy. They did okay, but they weren't great. And then I stumbled onto Chris Hansen. So now if you're going to ask me why are we successful, I'll say, well, I think that his SEO um, that, that he does he really has it dialed in he's built he they they work so hard on my website and they do so well on on search engine optimization that that's all i'm doing for well i do pay he, he also runs my pay-per-click which i ran from october till april and then said we're we need to just focus on the fact that we got guests coming now and not worry about we'll take whatever we get from normal seo and we're still getting I still get two or three emails a day right now that I'm that I'm looking at and making sure the office is handling in the mornings, you know. So I, I'd say the marketing is huge. I'd say the other reason we're successful is because I have a lot of return clients because, you know, this has always been a mom and pop business, mostly my family running it. Um, and for me, it's a labor of love. I mean, it's like, you, you know, I told you when I was – eight years old I was taking other kids fishing I like when I do something that's cool I want to share it with other people and and I and and, and you know I mean I care about people and I know that if people invest a lot of money and and we're not a ten thousand dollar a week lodge but if you come do a fairly mid-range venue with us you're spending some money by the time you've got airfare and you know, 
your rental car and license and you, you know your experiences here and gratuities to the people you know you you've dropped some money and i got to do everything i can out of integrity to make sure that we do the best we can. Now, I can't control weather, and every once in a while I have to sort of explain that to people, but for the most part, we get people that are reasonable, and they recognize at the end of the week that we worked hard, not perfect, but hard, and, um, you know, we've got that reputation, and we have a lot of return clients, and, you know, the stupidest thing in the world, as hard as it is to get a client, is to let them go because you don't do a good job, you know? So I'd say that's probably why we're doing pretty well um, is all, a combination of those things. I sort of cracked the code on the advertising with I've, 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 I've dropped into the 21st century. You know, <laughs> I'm a dinosaur with the adult handicap, but uh, I'm starting to figure it out. Now, I got a new partner and he's more of a dinosaur than me. You know, it's like I'm really hoping that this you know, is obviously trackable and become something that I can go look, look at how well this did for us, Alan. This is because we, we, we have to sort of, you know, we can't just look at everything the way we do as old people. We have to think about how younger people that are the new customers of our future are looking to find operations like us, you know. So, you know, but a combination of all that and taking care of the people when you do get them, you know, I mean, I, somebody told me one time, you know, one mad person will wreck your business more than 10 really happy people will, you know, and you're going to make people mad sometimes and there's nothing you can do about it, you know? Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I got, I think we got one, one star review on Google or something, or maybe it was Facebook. Somebody wrote it on Facebook and I remember the story quite well the 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 wife wanted to buy a present for her husband's birthday and she wanted him to come up in may and she wanted to buy him a basic package and i and this was quite a while ago so i was handling all the sales and i was like is there any other time besides may is she's like that's the only time he can get off from work i'm like well you know i mean there's some fishing around but it's pretty slow and, um, you know, but, but, you know, the saltwater fishing will be good. And, you know, we don't have a fly out that early, so that we'll have to do something different. So we tweaked a package and created a package for this guy who his wife was doing as a surprise. And so it was May and three river trips. And, um, for whatever reason, I think that year Kings were, Kings got closed early and um, he went and did his halibut trip. And um, he had a river trip with Monty for sockeyes, and they didn't hit a fish. And he happened to have some acquaintances locally, and he went and ate dinner with them. And, of course, these locals are like, why are you fishing for sockeye salmon right now? There's no fish in the river. And... um the guy just came uncorked like he we just we screwed him and we had him come and it was like your wife said this was the only time you could come we would have never i mean and then and he didn't go on his trip the next day and honest to god i think i still have the pictures in my phone 
money limited all four people because it's salmon right i mean and the guy and 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 he disparaged us on facebook and you can't get rid of that so that if you go look way back and read the facebook disparaging post it's that guy who disparaged us and we did nothing wrong i mean so he came at a time when you know it wasn't optimal but that's when his wife said he could come. She booked the trip. It was like, and somebody local said, well, there's no fish in the river now, which is a offhand, like, yeah, if you're local, you're not going fishing in May for sockeyes. They're going to be coming in, in, you know, I mean, like when I used to fish for sockeyes, when I was guiding on the river, I remember one day I was, I was guiding Kings and I got done with my trip and they, they were just pounding them. Right. I mean, you every fifth person, no matter where you were, was hooked up. So I thought, well, I might as well get my limit of sockeye. So I took one of my king rods because I wasn't really sport fishing. I was just trying to get three fish. I changed it over to a sockeye rig. I went and pulled my boat up to a shoreline, tied it off on a tree, stepped out three casts. I was done. I mean, literally. And of course, I, I was, you know, I had 40 pound or 35 pound test, whatever I was running. And it's like when I'd hook them, they'd jump and I'd just go, boom, just rip them out of the air onto the bank. And I mean, I did that three times and I threw them in the boat, whacked them, went home and said, all right, I got some sockeyes to eat. You know, I mean, yeah, that's what they meant. It's not, right. there's no fish in the river. It's not when you come. And this guy just disparages us. And when I tried to, re, when I tried to refute it, he was just getting angrier, so I was like, you just got to leave it alone. You're going to have a one on there, and you can't get rid of it. It's the only one we got, you know. I mean, but it happens. You know, you're never going to make everybody happy. But, you no, know? you work really hard. Like, people who come up here and they put in, you know, the resources to come to Alaska. Like, one, one reason why I love coming back and why this lodge is so great is the first trip I went on with Monty when I was up here working for you, um, this guy, it was just me and him and Monty, this guy would come up and he, he, he kind of, he's like, I'm retired. I've been saving up my whole life to come up here. And, uh, we all, we, we limited Monty gave us his fish, of course. And as, uh, Monty's going to get the boat loaded and everything, this guy just starts getting emotional. He's like, this is what I've dreamed of like my entire life. And, um, I, it was early season. I don't think he'd have the great greatest week of fishing but we we're just out there hammering these uh sockeye and this this dude is just like this is what i've like been dreaming to come do my whole life and you guys like did that for him it was yep. awesome i'm like okay alaska is alaska is where i i'm married and my wife would not come up here so it's a little different scenario than stepping <laughs> off the airplane and you know like okay this is where i gotta be but i'm like I need my fix of, of Alaska because that's just, it's like almost a romantic like feeling of like being up here and like having that experience. Yeah. The nostalgia that, that yeah. it hits you with. Oh, and yeah. I can tell you that, you know, doing these ultimates for 20 years now, I can't tell you how many times. And I mean, this is not like where people have told me that was the best day of my life. Yeah. You know, I mean, just the whole experience that was the most amazing experience usually they they back off because they usually have they they usually are married and they also have kids and they have to back <laughs> that one you know and they have to say that was the most amazing day of my life 
Yeah. You know, I mean, they, 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 they have to, they have to, <laughs> I mean, besides, you know, getting married to my wife, which was like, you know, for sure. Number cool one, too. other than when she had the kids, you know, I mean, there's are like, you know, it's like, I, I get it. You know, I, but you know, I mean, that, that has happened so many times. People tell me that was the most amazing day they ever experienced, you know, and it's pretty easy. To, you know, I, I, I'm not numb to it at all. You know, I mean, I, yeah, I, I get up and, you know, think how lucky I am that I'm going to get to go out and experience it again today. You know, I mean, and, and it, it's beautiful. I well, really enjoy I think it. the the fishing itself, like catching the fish is great and it's amazing, but you get out there and there's so much more like you, it makes you feel something. And I think that is probably why people have such a, you know, an attachment to it and they want to keep coming back. But through all the, you know, all your years of flying and guiding, like, what do you think is the main reason why people keep coming back to Alaska? You know, I think it's just like the Robert Service poem. I mean, it just gets in your blood. I mean, it really does. I mean, it, when you experience Alaska, I mean, a certain amount of you, it's just going to grip you like some kinds of sinning, you know? Yeah. You're, just, you're just compelled to do it. I mean, he just said it it's yeah. like he's got to get his fix you know i mean i i think that's a big part of it you know and if you find somebody that you know does a good job for you i mean i've got clients that come and do four ultimates with me every year and i've had them for pushing 20 years now and they know that we're gonna have some duds man we're gonna have some days where the weather beats us to death but you know what they'll book four of those ultimates Every they they come for like two and a half weeks every year, and and they do they go saltwater fishing. They go home with boxes of fish, and um, you know they know that there's going to be years where it's rough, you know, and but they know there's going to be days that are just top shelf where everything falls into place so perfectly, you know, and you know they they bring all kinds of clients to me friends of theirs you know everybody knows they know alaska and they want to go with them you know so i i just think it just once you experience it I, I a lot of people come to the lodge and present themselves as yeah this is my you know this is my trip of a lifetime and you know, this is a one-timer thing for me. And when they leave, they're like, I'm coming back. You know, it's like, I'll figure out a way, you know. now I mean, that happens a lot. You know, people that present themselves as, yeah, you know, I knew I had to do this once, you know. And, I mean, this is kind of a bucket list thing for me. And, I'm, you know, and, and then the end of the week, and they're like, yeah, well, we're, we think we're probably just going to come back this same week next year, you know. Or, you know, you talked about that silver salmon fish in, in the fall. We... I guess we better come back and see that, you know, or they, when, when should we come to see something different? When would you come if you were me, you know? And yeah. I mean, so there's a lot of that, but it, it's, it's Alaska. I mean, I don't want to take credit for Alaska. I, I'll take credit for doing a good job sharing it with people and, and doing it with integrity, but I can't take credit for wh why it happens to people. I mean, it's the play. God did that, you know? Yeah. I mean, he just, boiled up some stew that like everybody's gonna <laughs> like eating you know i mean it's like if you don't like that you got you're probably gonna starve yeah. <laughs> you know on a on a different different note kind of shifting gears just a little bit on some of the fishing aspects that we've done um obviously there's a there's a lot of tr fish that you do catch and release 
and there's also quite a bit of fish you do get to keep and take back with you uh can you kind of talk a little bit about like the different fisheries why like you know as, as far as a conservation effort goes for the you know fish that we're tossing back and some of the fish that we're keeping perfect well i'll start with the king salmon um you know my own personal feeling is that we should look at king salmon like those other fish they should be a sport fish um they're not prolific enough and i saw from the very first time i came up here i looked at the regulations and i said who are the idiots that drew this up you know the kenai river for example and is if you kill a fish you must stop fishing that day you can't put your line back in the water well you got people that spend a fair amount of money to go sit in a boat and fish and if they catch a small fish early in the day they ask the guide is that a big fish no that's not a very big fish for the kenai we'll let it go and then two hours later they get a 60 pounder you don't have to ask them what you, right. they're like whack that thing yeah. well the river was a river that selected for the largest salmon on planet earth whatever the selective capacity whatever it is about the river the size of the rocks or the current or whatever you had to be big to be successful and reproduce in that river and man comes along and creates a management plan that selects against it and i watched them shrink over 30 years and then on top of that we're hitting them everywhere they're getting caught up in commercial nets out in the inlet they're getting caught by you know saltwater boats sport fishing and trolling they're getting caught by you know bycatch from the ground trolling fisheries the pollock industry and they're just not going to make it i mean i'm just telling you i'm here to tell you man unless we get ungreedy and decide that they're too important to let go away we're just gonna they're just they're gonna go away i'm glad i got to fly fish some and do some amazing fisheries when fisheries that are closed now that i had an amazing time fishing 20 years ago 25 years ago very fortunate i think they're done for um it's too bad because it was the bread and butter of the lodge when we opened you know um all the other salmon species are prolific and as long as they're well managed we make sure that we get adequate escapement each year you can pretty much look at when you kill that fish you don't have to feel bad about it because it's a dead fish it's going to be dead in two or three weeks so the question's not you know are you murdering something that would have got to continue and your kid could come up and catch it next year when you brought him back or some other gentleman's kid you, did you allow enough to escape to replenish the resource so that the cycle continues and that's the beauty of salmon so i mean i try sometimes i have to ungilt fly fishermen into killing them i'm like hey this resource is doing really well this year that's the healthiest source of protein on the planet full of antioxidants omega-3 fat and high quality protein kill that fish we'll vacuum seal it for you and send it home with you you know <laughs> don't don't feel bad you know i mean i have to literally sometimes goad people into that because i know that hey this run's doing good this year i'm not worried about escapement um so you got your salmon, right? And and the really good eating ones, of course, would be the sockeyes and the silvers. And I think, you know, chum salmon really are not that good to eat, but they're a really fun sport fish to catch. 
um, and humpback salmon, uh, if you catch them in the salt, they're 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 edible. But you know, people don't want to take a pile of humpies home. Yeah. You know, um, the saltwater species, the 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 white meat fish, your sea bass, rockfish, um, lingcod, um, and uh, halibut. Those are you know huge biomass in the ocean now i'm not gonna tell you that we can't eventually negatively affect it i'm pretty sure we're as our human population grows everything's in danger i mean we are the ultimate top end predator and if we're not careful there's gonna be nothing left of anything anywhere but right now you know there's you can go out to chicken patches and the how, I mean, it's like, it does not look like we're in danger of not having enough hatches to maintain a massive halibut fishery. Do I see as many 200 pound halibut coming in as I did when I opened the lodge 27 years ago? No. Can you go out and drop a line down and have your rod go like this as soon as it hits bottom for hours? And bring up 20 pounders and 15 pounders. Yeah, that those places just still exist in massive quantities. So we're probably pretty safe to keep feeding on the ocean because the ocean is massive, right? Um, the rockfish, you know, they, they say those fish are very, very old. But, I mean, I tell you what, there must be a lot of them because when I go out with the saltwater captains and they take me to a rockfish hole, great fun to fly fish for. I mean, it's over so fast because it's four fish limit. And, you know, you you throw a fly out and go, they, they hit anything. They're ferocious and they're massive schools, you know. Um, but they say those fish are old, you know. I mean, these pelagic and non-pelagic rockfish. But they're also fine eating. You guys had the tacos the other day, right? Um, so, so, you know, that's obviously a, a great source of food. And then lingcod. Um, you know, they, they, I wonder if we can't have a negative impact on them because, you know, you got to go a little farther now to get them. But here's the deal. You look at the coast of Alaska. Do you know there's, there's more coastline in Alaska than the rest of the lower 48 combined on both sides by a long shot. There is massive amounts of coastline and most of it never gets touched. So though we may sort of really scour the areas we can reach in a day's run, you go a little farther than that, and it's like nobody's ever been there again. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we're a long ways from, you know, evacuating the ocean of its food potential unless we do it through, you know, maybe commercial fishing and, you know, killing off the lower end of the food source. Monty knows way more about this than me. You know, he's very heavily involved in the whole fisheries management. He's on the advisory board, and he—I'm always amazed at his level of intellect when he—I I learn things from him that I hadn't thought of. You know, about how things work. You know, I'm—I mean, I of course started out fisheries biology, like I told you, but it's not like I, you know, came away with a massive amount of scientific understanding and he's really starting to learn stuff in a very in-depth way but so you know if you want to come up any month from june through september and you know target a day or two of you know salt water to to fill the fish boxes 
pound whatever salmon are running at the time in the in the Kenai River, for example, which is your most economical trip, you know, in terms of not breaking the bank and going out and getting some, you know, getting a fishing experience guided and bringing home some fish or going on your own like you guys did today, right? Mm -hmm. You yep. went and got a couple salmon from the bank and you're cooking them tomorrow, I think. Um, uh, you know, and, and then spend your other three or four days targeting amazing fish that, you know, most of us fly fishermen just, what is it? The tug is the drug, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. You, you don't need to kill it to get the thrill. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's the kill is not the thrill. <laughs> the tug is the right. drug. I like that. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's the, the, you, 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 you know, you can, you can have a really nice, well-rounded trip and get the bonus of some really high quality protein to take home with you. You know, and, I, and I'll tell you, I mean, I, you guys probably are aware, I get my Cynogenic shirt on. I'm a health and wellness physician now, you know, um, a reformed ER physician, no longer treating disease, now trying to teach people how not to need me, the ER doctor. And there is no health. The, the, the best source of protein on the planet is wild fish. So, I mean, I'm a big advocate of making sure you go home with some wild fish to eat. You know, sure. and probably the healthiest source of wild fish on the planet is salmon, you know, because of the high concentration of omega fatty acids. And the red color actually uh, represents a, an antioxidant called the astaxanthin, which is one of the most potent antioxidants that we know of. So you just can't not go home with some salmon. Sure. Yeah. I don't know if it, I don't know if you kind of or were this way or if you were, too be interested in, to know, get y'all's take on it but i don't know you kind of as a fly fisherman of course you you hear all, all this stuff about you know catch and release only and all this you know the, see, we got to save the salmon the salmon are you know all the hell the world's going to hell we're all gonna die because <laughs> the salmon and you know i don't know as a fly fisherman that's what people put out i'm not yeah. saying it's right or wrong or whatever but you know i kind of just not living in alaska not living anywhere that there's salmon except for in the grocery store uh, both in Alabama and Utah happen to be that way. So yeah, you kind of get this feeling of like, oh my God, what if you killed a salmon? Like God might smite me if I did that, <laughs> right? Like Tom Rosenbauer from Orvis is going to show up and like hurt me physically <laughs> if I were to Tom hurt, if I were to hurt this salmon. But <laughs> on the flip side, right, like you kind of get up here and you kind of start seeing like, oh, man, this is you know, talking to you guys that see it every day. You know, this is more renewable than what I kind of, I guess, what you get in the lower 48 and the, the news reports that you're hearing. It's kind of nice to be able to get it's like a breath of fresh air being like, oh, OK. Yeah. So, I mean, these guys, obviously, you guys watching, I, I mean, he, this guy's taught me a ton about conservation while we've been here and kind of how things are running in Alaska and whatever. Um, I'm not saying the world isn't going to hell in a handbasket, but <laughs> oh, know, I think it's headed there. It's headed there. I think but, we can still eat some salmon for a while yeah. and not destroy it. Right, that, right. That's not the problem. Um, but uh, but definitely talking to Bob. I don't know which, if you guys got this or or not coming in. I don't know. I guess kind of in my head. Obviously, I knew there were different types of salmon, but nobody ever talks like the salmon fisheries going to hell. It's like uh, the stock the sockeye fisheries, as Bob has just said here, is you know 
that's okay to keep a few sockeye. That's yeah. fine. You couldn't but, get rid of them if you wrote known the lakes where <laughs> they where they bred. I mean, they're <laughs> right. they're like they're like rats. I mean, you know, you you they're, they're so prolific. I mean, the only thing is gonna, that's going to get them is if we do something to the ocean that stops them. You right. Know? I mean, right. We're just or we just get stupid. Like we're just going to string nets across the river, catch every one this year. We got to make sure none of them spawn. I mean, that's the right. only way you could get rid of them. Right. You you can't possibly <laughs> catch them all. Right. You but know? then, but the kings are obviously totally opposite. different. Like like let, like that's something. That's a resource that we need to put some time and effort and and yeah. obviously some money into saving absolutely and you know hook one of those we're gonna let it go like you know all that kind of stuff but the, there's other species of salmon out there that are as bob just said are doing perfectly fine mm -hmm. i i felt the same thing though coming in you know i think yeah there's just something about the maybe the social culture of fly fishing or something that just these misconceptions that oh you're a bad person if you keep fish or there's just there's this pressure that you shouldn't keep fish or whatever, um, but it's it's reassuring to come here and not have to feel bad about it and actually experience that. Um, you know, we we obviously haven't eaten it yet, but we're we're going to. Um, but this is how people have lived for thousands and thousands of years. They've they've caught salmon, they've lived yeah. off the land, and so it's kind of cool to come here and and experience that. And uh, not you, but you can also do the sport fishing. Like we've also been able to just go catch rainbows and dollies and whatever and release them. Um, but yeah, I, th I think the same thing I talking with you the, the last week and my perspective has definitely changed about that and has understood the, I've also understood the, um, the fishery a little bit more, you know, even though we are keeping some fish. But. Well, you guys asked me about our pike good eating and I told you the story about when I, I'd taken the family out to where the big ones spawn and, you know, I mean, they're aggressive fish and I had you know, I took the beaver load, you know, so there was, <laughs> there were six of us out there, six fishing and me unhooking and released all the fish. And I saw two and one was a pretty big one. And the other one was about the size of the one that, that you guys, the, the two you guys caught and, um, they were floating, you know, so I taxied up and I'd never eaten them. And I taxied up, I netted them and I said, well, I'm not gonna let them go to waste, you know, Threw them in the float hatch, got home, did read, you know, got the YouTube video on how to clean the Y bones out, cleaned them up, cooked them side by side on a, a fish fry with halibut. And to a man, every person said they liked them better than the halibut. You know what? I'll be honest. I know some places where there's lots of pike, like where they're polluted. There's so many, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of like you're not going to hurt them and I will purposely kill them there example where we were fishing yesterday i don't feel guilty about keeping a few of those fish i no, wouldn't keep I wouldn't. the big giant ones because i'm as as the guy who's guiding there i'm like i want you know maybe one of my clients one. will catch that next week you know or, or next year and it'll be five pounds bigger you know but you know keeping a few of the medium-sized ones to have one pike meal a year it's kind of right. like you know that's to me that that's not a that's not a inhumane negative thing that's like uh, uh accepting god's grace that he's providing this resource for me and you know i mean I, i'm smart enough to know that look there's it wouldn't surprise me if i'm the only person that fishes that lake this year you know right because yeah. i'm the only one that really does the ultimates for our 
our group, you know, and I don't think very many people go out there, you know, I mean, maybe some of the natives that don't live too far away get there now and then, but you know, I mean, and, and all of those lakes we flew over, most of those lakes near that drainage, they all have pike in them. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're ubiquitous fish, you know? So, you know, there, there are certain species you should be careful. I'm pretty careful on the lake trout. You know, I don't have a great concept of how many lake trout are in that lake. You know what I mean? I just don't, you know, I'm a little less, I'm a little more afraid to, to, to hammer those. I mean, those lakes are big. Maybe there's just more than I can imagine and we couldn't possibly hurt it, you know? But I, I haven't got to the point where I'm comfortable just killing lake trout to eat them. And I'd never kill a grayling yeah. unless it yeah. dies. Yeah. If, I, if a grayling dies, I'll eat it because they're not bad eating. But, I mean, you know, a 17-inch grayling is a 15-year-old fish. It takes a long time to replace that. Wow. Yeah. You know, and so it's like I, I won't kill a grayling. I don't let guests kill grayling. Um, you know, same thing pretty much with the char. There, there are a few places where I have some char fisheries where they're – really really prolific and not very big and i don't worry too much about like taking some home to do a little fish fry you know now and then uh or letting a guest do so hey you know if you want to keep a couple of those and and cook them up tonight they're not fish that i'm going to have guests taking home to vacuum seal to make their fish box heavier but if somebody right. says boy we'd really like to try one of these tonight i'm like yeah i'm okay with that yeah. you know yeah i mean um but yeah, it, it, uh, it is the nice thing about fly fishermen is you almost have to goad them into keeping a fish. But I, I will do that for salmon and for certain other settings. You yeah. Know? yeah, I don't know. I, I like that. Mm -hmm. Like you know, right time, right place. Obviously, you know, don't feel bad about it if it is a, like right. a resource that isn't really endangered. Like you're, you know, yeah. right. Well, one of the things that was interesting is just when we were flying the amount of lakes and the amount of rivers that we passed <laughs> and just, just thinking like, I wonder if any of these have ever been fished. Like which, yeah. which one of these lakes have just never seen human beings, you know, yeah, just someone land. Yeah. Not just land a plane, but like physically be in this area to fish it. it, it and, and you just kind of, as you're flying over, I know we just like start, we got back and we're like, man, we need to go fish that. Yeah. Like <laughs> that river. Could you imagine? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have drop, Bob drop us off, <laughs> float down this river. <laughs> so, you know, when we were flying out there to the Pike spot yesterday, I didn't say anything to you guys, but on my map, I, I had a, an icon that says check clear because I found a river and I saw a lake I could land in and walk over to a stream that was clear that I've never fished. And I just, it's, it's, it's all it says. It was a dot that said check clear. I mean, because it was like a non-glacial, pretty nice looking sized stream. And it was like, I should land there and check that someday, you know. But I mean, I still haven't checked it. And like one of the things I say a lot is so many lakes, so little time. You need to start calling me for some of these check trips. <laughs> I, need to, I need to get signed up for Bob's checks or something like that. I've... I, have found some really cool spots over the years by just going in and trying something that is nobody, that how you find what, most one, of the places one of my, to fish? One of my favorite places to fish, but it's a tight landing. So like, you know, we could have done it. Um, we could have done it, and, and and the best time is in the fall. But it does fish now. It's got char that are big. I mean, like when I say big, 
10 pounders. Rainbows, 24 to 26 inches, just gorgeous. And then a medium sized lake trout population. And the outflow stream has grayling. But it's a sketchy lake for landing. So you got to, it, it's, 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 I mean, it's not sketchy, but I got to shuttle out of there. I couldn't take us all out. So I would, if I went in there, it would be, we would use up a substantial part of the day. Um, it fishes better in the fall than it does in the spring, but it does fish in the spring. Um, which you guys were in, no, you were in, you were, if you would have been in A, you would have seen a picture of a rainbow trout me holding a trout with a fly fisherman holding his fly rod and the beaver in the background it's a 24 inch rainbow just perfect right i mean these are not scarred up fish this fish never been seen before right never never seen a fly probably and we caught it well you know i mean i just kind of stopped in there one day you know it was kind of small i was in the cub and i thought i'll fish it you know, ended up catching six nice rainbows. Now, you know, the next time I went, I got nothing. So it's kind of like, well, this is a rough place to take clients because it's not that consistent. So I tell people, look, this is a, if we catch fish here, they're going to be spectacular, but it's a potential goose egg, you know, and it's going to yeah. use up some of our day. Yep. So it takes a special client that's willing to take a chance on something like that, you know, but it's a series of three little lakes that have connecting streams and then an outflow river that's small that ultimately flows into the Chilicadrotna. And uh, it's one of my favorite places to fish. I always hit it during moose camp because it's not very far away from moose camp. It's like, I'll fly the cub in there and, and fish it, you know. And uh, But it, it's, it, you know, it's like on the ultimate, I'm a little leery to take people in because, you know, we can get a goose egg there and, you know, but I tell people, and I mean, like the picture of that guy on the wall, you know, that was his trout of a lifetime, man, you know, because he said, okay, I'll take my chances. It sounds good, you know, and uh, I've caught some amazing char in there, too, and then the lake trout are not bad, and and it's good fly fishing, and it's I've I've taken people in with float tubes, and we've had some pretty good days, you know, paddling around. That's amazing. We're on. We're over here on Google Maps, looking at looking at creeks, and you're just up here in the plain, just like, oh, that one looks good. Let's <laughs> yeah. drop in there. <laughs> I can't imagine. Um, the last thing I I wanted to ask you was, uh, I made a film kind of on this earlier in the year um, around the concept of uncertainty and how it relates to fly fishing, and there's obviously a lot of uncertainty in in your job with being a bush pilot, being a lodge owner, being a fly fishing guide physician, whatever it is. Um, so I wanted to know how you deal with uncertainty and then to your advice that you have for young people who are dealing with any sort of uncertainty in life. Cause there's obviously a lot of unknowns, um, going through this, this journey of life, but, I, you know, through your experience, I just would love to hear, um, what you think. Yeah. It's funny. You know, they, 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 um, I've been listening to a recent Tony Robbins tape and, and that's exactly, he talks a lot about, you know, our adversity with uncertainty. You know, it's, it's basically what screws a lot of us up is that we don't handle uncertainty. Well, you know, it's what makes us make bad decisions in life because we're trying to create certainty where there is none, you know? So I guess, 
the the biggest advice I have is you got to realize that every experience is exactly what God had in mind for you. And whether you just have to smile your way through everything, man, you know, I mean, it's like the days when, when you're getting pelted by the weather and it's uncomfortable, you can actually just sort of go, you know, it's really not uncomfortable. It's just another experience and embrace it, you know? And I mean, that's how I kind of try to get through everything. I try to make everything that I experience every day when I wake up a positive thing by just having a positive attitude in my mind, you know? And it's easier for me to not feel bad about my lot in life because I have that attitude, but it's tougher for me as a guide because I want every person to have that 10% day and I suffer when they have that 90 percentile day you know (laughs) when i'm out there and it's just the horrid weather and you go god these people spent so much money on this trip it's the most expensive trip we have and i got my rear end handed to me i did everything i could there was i just i was snookered there was no way out you know and they had a horrible trip and i was nothing i could do about it you know that's hard for me you know i mean but it's hard for me because it's not, not because I feel sorry for myself. I feel bad for them, you know. I didn't have a miserable day, you know, other than my grief for that person. But I, I just think you have to look at life as every experience, good or bad. You know, he, he said something. I'll tell you a story. Um, I'm going to pick on my daughter. So I, mean, I took her. She graduated from high school. And I wanted to have a father-daughter trip. So I said, you know, you haven't been to Las Vegas. And I, my Cinegenics um, uh, place is uh, the mothership of where I studied health and wellness medicine. It was in, is in Las Vegas. And so I travel there and see patients there some. And so I scheduled a couple patients and we went there for a week. And um, we landed and got on the shuttle to go get the rental car. And I looked in my wallet and I had nothing but hundreds. And I was like, and I wanted to give the guy, the, the shuttle guy, five bucks. I said, Lise, do you have any small bills? And she said, yeah. And she took some bills out. And I saw them and I said, give me five. And so I, I, I gave the guy five. And we got to the room and we had red-eyed it. So we landed at six in the morning and I got the, I got the room for an extra day so we could check in right away. And we went and we went to sleep. So we woke up cause we had a scheduled event at one thirty, and she said, um, we're getting ready to go. And she said, dad, I can't find my money. And I said, what money? And she said, well, I had $700. So she must've dropped it in the shuttle. So if, when she took it out, she must have missed her purse. Or She said, I know I put it back in my purse, and I zipped it up. I said, well, your purse hasn't been out of our control. You dropped it, you know. 
And I actually was a little angry about it, you know, because, I mean, she worked here in the summer and she worked hard for the money and 700 bucks is a lot of money. And and then it just so happened I was listening to that that tape when I was driving to work the next day, still a little beat up over the fact that she lost 700 bucks and partially sort of like when the ultimate client has a bad trip, you know, it's like it's, it happened, it's uncontrollable, but it so bad I feel bad about it and he said in this tape he said you know bad things happen to good people he said have you ever heard the saying you know five years from now we're going to look back at this and laugh about it he goes why not just laugh about it now and I mean that hit me like a punch in the face on that issue. And I went back and I said, Elise, you're the only person I know that lost $700 in Las Vegas within five minutes of getting there and you didn't even make it to the casino. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it's oh like, and it was like the 700 bucks didn't matter anymore, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and at the end, I, I, I gave her half of it back and I said, you know what? It was... It was half on me. If I hadn't, if I would have just had small, I mean, right. I asked you for money and you dropped it and you know, we were tired and it's like, so look, um, I, you know, I mean, it was like, so, but, but you know, I mean that, that's, that's kind of my attitude. You know what? Hey, look, if you can laugh about it five years from now, you can laugh about it now. And that's how you deal with uncertainty, you know? Man, that's like great! That. <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. But I got that from Tony Robbins, so I give you the give. <laughs> no, but credit. yeah, great, great way to tie it all together. And I yeah. think that you know it goes hand in hand with fly fishing and anything we, you know, any sort of adventure that yeah. you guys that we do. Um, the, you know, the one other thing uh, that that's along those lines is the reason we love to fly fish is uncertainty. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, the, I, I read an article one time and, and it was and it was about substance abuse okay and it was talking about people that come to the ER to try to get drugs out of the doctor and and they were talking about that it's and, and whoever it was must have been a fly fisherman because he said it's the same reason steelhead people steelhead fish it's because if you just keep casting, eventually you're gonna hook one. And, and 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 what they said was the most powerful types of behaviors that get reinforced is variable reinforcement. And I tell people this because there are places where I take people fishing, and I tell them, "You've been there." I might have told. Yeah, I got a picture of you. I can probably show. I know I can show it to you on the computer. Uh -huh. The Bay of Pigs. Yeah. When the dollies are in. Yeah. And I tell people, I go. The only problem with the dollies is there's just too many of them. The fishing's too good. And they're like, yeah, I don't believe that. And it's like in an hour they go, okay, I see what you mean. Because if you know you're gonna hook another one when you throw it back out, it quits mattering. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and that's exactly it. You've got to have that variable reinforcement. So the uncertainty is what's important, actually, you know? And so when you get your butt handed to you once in a while, laugh about it and move on. Because it's not going to happen every time. And if it 
didn't ever happen, the good experiences wouldn't matter anymore. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But that, but that, but I tell people that, and I tell you how many times I've done that, and they go, you know what? You're right. I wish there was less fish. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm like, I know. Isn't it terrible? I'm like, this place is horrible. Let's get the heck out of here. You know. One star review. There was too many fish. Too many yeah, fish. don't come to Alaska. This place but, sucks. But there are. There's occasional places like that where you go, fishing's so good, it's not P- good. Place is just lousy with Dolly Varden. Yeah. yeah. I mean, lousy they come in with- by the. Ten thousand dollies go up this little creek, and they just—you you can't not catch one on a cast when they're in. The you know when you, the exact pin for that is uh, dropped below yeah, in the comments. Below. <laughs> you got to book an ultimate. Yeah, you got to book an ultimate it's right here. <laughs> oh man. That's funny. You know, I would have considered taking you guys there, except I know that water's so because it's just about probably about the time it starts going off. But I, w- I would be afraid to go that direction and then find out there's like probably no water in the creek. And then maybe they, they'd probably be stacked up in the ocean if there's enough water coming in that they're finding it. I mean, they know where they are because they come back every year. So they're probably not like a salmon using, you know, their navigation's not based on scent. They go every year. They go up the creek. They right. chase the salmon and then eat the salmon cycle then spawn and then go back out into the ocean again for the winter you know yep. but I, I would have been afraid to go there would have been i mean it'd been a beautiful flight scene venue but i wouldn't have had much else in my repertoire if we got nothing you know i honestly don't know if i can fish anymore i'm so tired and we have fished so hard <laughs> i'm proud of you <laughs> But we do have people. I told my wife that she's like, "Are you serious?" I'm like, "No, I'm just kidding." But it's been a no. good, it's been a great <laughs> week grind. Fishing. Yeah, but, no, I, I have people go, "Yeah, it's gonna be good to get back to work and get some rest." <laughs> yeah. I mean, then they're dead serious. You know, they're like, "I mean, at least I'm gonna get to sleep in now." <laughs> you know, it's like I only got to get up at six thirty. You know, <laughs> right? And 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 all I got to do is sit at an office desk. Oh man, no, it's been such an amazing week. We've done. I mean. Like a trip of a lifetime and fit it all in in just a few days. Caught some amazing fish. Um, seen some, I mean, just the landscapes alone. You come up here and if you did that and didn't catch a single fish, it's totally worth it. So, yeah, that's the thing with the ultimate is that the plane ride itself is worth going. Yeah. I mean, all if right. you've never done a, done a float plane or anything like bush plane, whatever, even it doesn't even matter if you fish. If you book it as a fishing trip, the fishing is a bonus. It would, st- yeah. yeah. The fishing is a bonus to the to the bush plane. I don't think I had ever seen uh, that amount of like country untouched by humans. Yeah, like it's just so in its in so in its element, the just purity, just like so pure. It's yeah. awesome. Uh, I don't know. That was probably the biggest thing. I and, took and, away. and taking that all in, I think, is like at the end of the week, like oh my gosh, like I've just it, it's so much. Like wow, I've had quite the week. Yeah, and that's why that poem, when you read that to us, yeah. in I'm going to try one more, okay, to just close it out. And yes. if I blow it, yes. if I blow it, just, just we'll cut just this part right off, okay? <laughs> um, so I told you guys the spell of the Yukon, and this is called uh, The Call of the Wild, also by Robert Service. Have you gazed on naked grandeur where there's nothing else to gaze on? Set pieces and drop curtain scenes galore. Big mountains heave to heaven, which the blinding sunsets blaze on black canyons where the rapids rip and war 
Have you swept the vision valley with the green stream streaking through it? Search the vastness for a something you have lost. Have you strung your soul to silence? Then for God's sakes, go and do it. Hear the challenge, learn the lesson, pay the cost. Have you wandered in the wilderness, the sagebrush desolation, the bunch grass levels where the cattle graze? Have you whistled bits of ragtime at the end of all creation and learned to know the desert's little ways? Have you camped upon the foothills? Have you galloped over the ranges? Have you roamed the arid sunlands through and through? Have you chummed up with the mesa? Do you know its moods and changes? Then hearken to the wild. It's calling you. Have you known the great white silence? Not a snow gem twig a quiver. Eternal truce to shame our soothing lies. Have you broken trail on snowshoes? Mushed your huskies up the river? Dared the unknown, led the way, and clutched the prize? Have you marked the map void spaces? Mingled with the mongrel races? Felt the savage strength of brute in every thew? And though grim as hell the worst is, can you round it off with curses? Then listen to the wild, it's wanting you. Have you suffered, starved, and triumphed, groveled down, yet grasped at glory, grown bigger in the bigness of the whole, done things just for the doing, letting babblers tell the story, seeing through the thin veneer the naked soul? Have you seen God in his splendors, heard the text that nature renders. You'll never hear it in the family pew. The simple things, the true things, the silent men who do things. Then listen to the wild, it's calling you. They have cradled you in custom. They have primed you with their preaching. They have soaked you in convention through and through. They have put you in a showcase. You're a credit to their teaching. But can't you hear the wild? It's calling you. Let us probe the silent places. Let us seek what luck betides us. Let us journey to a lonely land I know. There's a whisper in the night wind and a star agleam to guide us and the wilds calling, calling. Let us go. That's that's my second favorite. Oh my gosh! Whoever gave it a three hadn't been to Alaska. (laughs) That person is like that That guy has lost his mind. That person's in Florida. Uh, Three. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think I'm gonna get into poetry after this podcast. (laughs) Start reading up on my poetry. (laughs) It's way better. Well, you you know, you know, um, the the my, my favorite one. The one I put on my son's, I gave to my son for his birthday, is uh, by Rudyard Kipling. And that was the first poem I ever memorized. The poem, If, you ever heard it? If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, if you can bear to see the truths you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or see the things you gave your life to broken, 
and stoop and build them up with worn out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and and hold on when there is nothing left in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the world and everything that's in it, but which is more, you'll be a man, my son. So I, I bought that for my kid and I framed it and put it on the wall in his room, you know. Love it. I don't think he's ever read it. <laughs> <laughs> He'll read it. He'll read it sometime. What? He'll read it when he when he needs to read it. One time. Yeah. Wow. Well, Bob, seriously, it's been a, a pleasure being up here. We really appreciate you, Man, you guys were great. having us up here and it's been a pleasure talking and like I said earlier with the podcast, I think it's just it's such a fun way to to get into a conversation and yeah. and hear some some more in depth things about what you do in the history of this lodge, um, if anyone out, any of our listeners, um, you know, want to learn more about the lodge or they want to book a trip, what would be the best way for them to do so? Well, obviously, they can go to the website. It's pretty extensive. It you know, I've tried to do a good job where the website kind of if if you're willing to navigate it and put in the time, you know, it, it's almost as extensive as what we've presented here today in this conversation. Not quite with the subtle. <laughs> I mean, I, if you, if you actually go in and like, you go to the, like, if you go to the fishing HTML and you click on the calendar and then you click on the species, you can read about, I mean, I talk about the King salmon and the plight and I talk about, you know, I mean, I, I, I cover a lot of what we talked about to be honest, but you know, it's an app that website's extensive. It's massive. So you could go to the website you could learn a lot. You could probably kind of filter your way through and kind of maybe come up with, you know, what meets my needs analysis if you took that time. Obviously, you can call and talk to, not this time of year, me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm go- but in the wintertime, I mean, I'm always happy to talk with fly fishermen. Uh, my my um, manager, Bill, understands this uh, um, this industry quite well but a real hardcore fly fisherman he might pass them off to me just like he probably would a ptarmigan hunter you know um but certainly you can call the office uh 907-953-0186 and you'll either speak this time of year you would speak with tess who's our office manager um in the winter you'd speak with bill who would be more of our you know helping out with uh um the marketing part of it um and uh, my cell phone number, 907-953-0473. I mean, if somebody leaves me a message, I'm going to eventually get back to them, but I just can't promise one day turnaround this yeah. time of year. Um, the website is allalaska.com, so that's pretty easy. Um, you know, we've got an Instagram page and uh, a Facebook page that I'm sure you younger people can figure out how to find that pretty easily <laughs> without me giving you instructions. Um <laughs> And, uh, 
you know, I, we'd be happy to try to help coordinate, you know, the trip that meets your needs analysis and, and help you get everything set up. And, um, you know, I'd, I'm, I'm hopeful to have you guys back sometime, you know, show you a different different time frame because uh looks like from what i can see you guys have a really professional operation as far as what what you're doing in this venue and you know i it's just going to be sort of showing how successful it was which i truly expect will be quite successful yeah. for um you know helping us uh to get this time frame exposed for what it can do get some people up here so we're a little busier during this time frame where where we're not quite as busy and then you know i mean once you sort of prove that proof of concept then you kind of pick other times you know and start you, to you guys hear that around. help us out come book a trip <laughs> there you go <laughs> they want to come back i'm glad yeah, no. too um yeah de- absolutely i mean we we're, we can't wait to come back and we hadn't even left yet so yeah we're well, I'm, I'm hoping you guys have a good day tomorrow. Uh, I'm around, so um, I got tomorrow off, which is the first day in a while. So um, I'll be over in my office. So if anything comes up, rattle my cage. Sweet. Sweet man. We got some moose meat and some salmon to go cook up. Yeah, we do. Here in uh, 10 p.m. in Alaska. Yeah, and it's still light out. Still oh, you guys <laughs> are cooking that tonight. Oh, I yeah. thought you guys were saving that for tomorrow. We, we, we're, we've got we'll, part of it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, I don't know what's going on anymore. We'll we need happens. to eat some food. <laughs> yeah. No, man, this has been great. Yeah, Alex, again, thanks. We're going to obviously do another podcast tomorrow night with you, but um, appreciate you setting all this up and making this connection happen. That that was an awesome deal, man. I mean, I just think, you know, I, I, I... you know, you you love to rub it into your. I mean, not not in that way, but I mean, it's like I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident that I'm going to be going. You know, Alan, <laughs> I was right. You were, you know, when I, I saw their movies on YouTube. I, I just knew, like, they have to be up here. And right, so, well, and I saw them, too, and I mean, I was impressed with the artisticness of it, you know? These guys are fantastic. Yeah. Mo- I can't wait for the movie to come out. Um, It's going to be phenomenal. Just so, for me, like, my own selfish reasons is I can have a, 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 a video of this, like, and just look back, like, you know, 20, 30 years from now, like, I can always go back and look at that, like, that's what I did. Like I, I got to go do that in Alaska. That'd be fun. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah it'll be fun. I'll be looking forward to seeing, yeah, seeing your, be great. your parts in it. I wish we could fly out and have a, a viewing party here in the, the clubhouse. I know, right? Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately yeah. probably not the case. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, you never know, man, maybe by next year we'll be talking about getting you back out here the next year and we'll have a viewing party that year. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, guys, we appreciate y'all listening and sticking around. And um, yeah, we're going to go cook up some moose. So we'll see y'all in the next one. Boom. Sweet. Bye. Awesome. Nice to meet y'all. Appreciate it. It was great.